0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. We got a sleep bonanza for you this week, a big, meaty episode. We're going to have answer all your questions about sleep, which is a huge issue before we dive in, three items of business. One, um, there is still time to join uh, our 10% Happier January Meditation Challenge. Two days left to join the uh, challenge. Friday, the 10th of January is the last day to sign up. Um, you can follow me and uh, one of our star meditation teachers, Alexis Santos, in the challenge. You can sign up through the app. Second thing to point out, since we're doing our Sleep Bonanza this week, that if, if you check out the app itself, we have a whole – meaty section of the app dedicated to sleep, and uh, we hear from a lot of users about how helpful that is. And the third thing to point out is that the voicemails this week are going to be answered by Oren J. Sofer, uh, another really popular meditation teacher on uh, the 10% Happier app, and Oren has recorded many of our uh, uh, most popular meditations for sleep, so he'll be answering sleep-related meditation questions at the end of this episode. Okay. Okay. So, our guest this week is Dr. Matthew Walker, uh, who earned his neuroscience degrees over in the uh, UK and then became a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and is right now a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California in Berkeley. Um, He wrote a best-selling book called Why We Sleep, and we're doing a two-part episode this week. In the first part, we're talking about Um, All the things, all the unfortunate things that can happen to you when you don't get enough sleep to your heart, to your brain, to the other parts of your body, we're talking about the uh, link between sleep and mental health, what kind of impact meditation can have on sleep, and the stigma in our society around sleep. And then we so we did an hour together on that uh, several months ago. Actually, we first recorded that first hour and then we took a couple months break and I started to wear a sleep tracking ring. And so we go back to uh, uh, Matthew for another chunk of this interview where we talk about my data and many other questions uh, that are fascinating. So here we go with part one of the interview with Matthew Walker on sleep. It's a pleasure to meet you. I kind of feel like I know you after having listened to so many podcasts. <laughs> well, likewise, too, I have to say. So, yeah, our relationship goes by gears at this stage. Uh, this is great. Uh, nice to see old friends. And and you have had, uh, as I was saying to you earlier, you've really had an impact in the way I think about sleep. So I'm, I'm excited to pass that along to our listeners and viewers. So let me just ask some biographical stuff. How did you get interested in sleep in the first place?
1: <laughs> um. I don't think anyone, you know, when they're five or six years old and you go around the classroom and say, what would you like to be when you grow up? No one shoots the hand up and says, I'd love to be a sleep researcher. <laughs> and I think we're all accidental sleep researchers. And I was the same. So back during my PhD work, I was looking at brainwave patterns in people with dementia, early stages. And I was trying to differentially diagnose what form of dementia that they had. Was it um, sort of vascular dementia or Alzheimer's disease? And I was failing miserably. And I used to go home at the weekends with this stack of journals and I'd put them in my doctor's residence. It's like a little igloo of information around me. And one weekend I was reading that some of the centers that certain types of dementia would eat away at in the brain were sleep generating centers. And then for other types of dementia, they left those centers untouched. So I thought, well, I'm measuring the brainwave pattern of my patients at the wrong time, which is when they're awake. I should be measuring it when they're asleep. Started doing that, got great results. And at that point, I thought, maybe the sleep disruption is not just a symptom of the dementia. I wonder if it's actually a causal trigger. And that's when I just fell headlong into this field of sleep research. And at that time, no one could answer the question, why do we sleep? This is 20 years ago. The crass answer was that we sleep to cure sleepiness, (laughs) which is the, the fatuous equivalent of saying you eat to cure hunger. It tells you nothing about the biological benefits of of nutrition. We
0: really do nothing about why we we sleep?
1: 20 years ago, we just had very little understanding, other than that it was deathly if you removed it. And they did these studies, um, some studies that probably will never be replicated again for ethical reasons, in rats. And they decided to deprive the rats completely of sleep. And what they found was that those rats would die as quickly from sleep deprivation as they would from food deprivation within about 10 or 11 days. And so we were only on the cusp of realizing how fundamentally necessary sleep was. I then thought, well, you know, if nobody knows it right now, I'll just come along and for two years I'll go to America and I went sort of to Boston and I thought, I'll crack that question with total naivety, not hubris. Um, not realizing that some of the most brilliant minds had failed to crack the question. And as I said, that was 20 years ago. And I think hard lessons care little about who asks them. They will meter out their lessons of difficulty all the same. Um, And I've been schooled over the past 20 years.
0: So what do we know about why we sleep?
1: Well, it's fascinating. Over the past 20 years, we've had an explosion of knowledge. In fact, we've had to upend that question rather than saying, you know, why do we sleep? We've now had to ask, um, is there anything that sleep doesn't serve in terms of a benefit for either the brain or the body? And the answer seems to be no. There is no single tissue within the body, nor process of the mind that isn't wonderfully enhanced when we get sleep or demonstrably impaired when we don't get enough.
0: So walk me through the reasons why we should be attending so carefully to our sleep if we don't get enough sleep what happens
1: so let me start in the body and we'll just go through maybe the major physiological systems so firstly um, reproductive health what we know is that men who are sleeping just four to five hours a night will have a level of testosterone which is that of someone 10 years their senior so a lack of sleep will age a man by a decade in terms of that aspect of wellness and virility um, we see equivalent impairments in female reproductive health caused by a lack of sleep. Um, stepping away from the reproductive system, um, we also know that a lack of sleep has a dramatic impact on your cardiovascular system. There's a great example um, from perhaps the largest sleep study ever done. It affects 1.6 billion people, it is sort of undertaken across about 60 different countries twice a year, and it's called daylight savings time. Mm-hmm. Now, in the spring, when we lose one hour of sleep, we see a subsequent 24% increase in heart attacks the following day, which stuns me. Um, In the autumn, in the fall, when we gain an hour of sleep, we see a 21% reduction in heart attacks. That's how fragile and vulnerable our cardiovascular systems are. And by the way, you see exactly the same profile for road traffic accidents on our streets, even suicide rates following daylight savings time. I'll speak about the immune system though, because that's something else that's fundamentally regulated by a lack of sleep. It doesn't require a whole night of sleep deprivation. I can take an individual and we can deprive you, let's say, of four hours of sleep. So you only get four hours that one night. And then the next day we measure some critical anti-cancer fighting immune cells called natural killer cells. And they're almost sort of like the secret service agents of your immune system. They're very good at identifying malignant tumors and destroying them. After one night of four hours of sleep, we see a 70% drop in these natural killer cells, these critical anti-cancer fighting cells. And we could just sort of keep stepping through um, the body. But let me just take a moment to go upstairs in the brain Because sleep is not just for your body, it's in fact by the brain, of the brain, and perhaps most importantly for the brain. One of the most feared diseases in developed nations is Alzheimer's disease. And what we've discovered over the past just five years now is that there's a remarkable sewage system in your brain that kicks into high gear at night while we sleep. And that sewage system is called the glymphatic system. Now, you have a similar system in your body that everyone knows. It's called the lymphatic system. But we didn't realize that the brain also has a cleansing system called the glymphatic system. And one of the sort of toxic um, metabolic byproducts that sleep using this system will wash away at night is a sticky toxic protein called beta amyloid. And beta amyloid is one of the protein culprits underlying Alzheimer's disease. And so what we see is that even after one night, you can bring perfectly healthy people into the laboratory. You can actually remove their sleep or even just selectively remove their deep sleep, which is when that sort of system, that sort of good night, sleep clean kind of power cleanse actually happens. You can just selectively remove that type of sleep. And the next day, you do what's called um, a spinal cord puncture. And you siphon off some of the fluid. Who volunteers for this kind of study? <laughs> you have to pay them rather a lot of money yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, be very nice to them. <laughs> and they never do the study again, probably. So what we find is that that measure of cerebrospinal fluid that we take from the spinal cord tells us what's going on in the brain. And you see an immediate next day rise in the amount of this beta amyloid toxic protein circulating in the s- system and this is in healthy people after just one night so now you can imagine what happens if you scale that across weeks or years that it's like compounding interest on a loan mm. every night that you're short changing your brain of sleep you're not cleansing the brain of that beta amyloid that toxic alzheimer's protein and so it starts to scale and it doesn't scale in a linear fashion because it's an exponential and that's exactly what we see with Alzheimer's disease as a pattern of pathology and as a pattern of cognitive decline. And just last year, we published evidence that those two things, that as you get older, your sleep gets worse. And as you get older, your memory gets worse. Those two things aren't simply coincidental. They're actually causally interrelated.
0: Mm-hmm. And so we're really understanding so This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about
1: So much more now about um, the fundamental role that sleep plays in every one of these physiological systems in the body and operations of the mind. We can also speak about sleep and mental health. Hopefully at some point that link is incredibly
0: strong as well. Well, well let's talk about that now because it's just where I was going in my mind with this. What is the impact of sleep on our emotions, on our relationships, on our ability to perform? Yeah, it's
1: it's now really very clear. Um, firstly, if you take sleep away from an individual and you look at the changes in their brain, there is a deep emotional center of the brain that I know that you've spoken about before called the amygdala. And it's one of the centerpiece regions for the generation of impulsive, strong um, reactions, particularly negative emotional reactions. We did a study where we took people and we deprived them of sleep for a night, put them in the scanner, And that part of the emotional brain showed a 60% increase in its reactivity the next day. What was worse was that... So in other words, you're freaking out more easily. So yeah, your emotional brain is just incredibly um, sensitized by a lack of sleep. And part of the reason that we found is that there's another part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, and particularly the middle part of the prefrontal cortex that sits right above your nose, about two inches above that.
0: And just to say, you may be about to say this, but prefrontal cortex is involved in regulating our emotions. That's right.
1: So you can think of your prefrontal cortex almost like the CEO of your brain. It's it's the center of sanity, really. Yeah, Yeah. sort of high-level, top-down executive control decisions. Um, And it's normally um, nicely linked to that sort of Neanderthal emotional brain, and it controls it. But without sleep, that connection had actually been severed. And as a consequence, without sleep, we become all emotional gas pedal and too little regulatory control break, as it were. And what was frightening to me in some ways was that that neural signature was not dissimilar to numerous psychiatric conditions. And we're now finding links between a lack of sleep and um, disorders such as anxiety, PTSD included, Mm -hmm. schizophrenia, depression, and tragically and most recently, suicide as well. In fact, sleep disruption seems to predict suicidal thoughts, suicidal um, attempts, and suicide completion. And in the past 20 years of studying this field with sleep and mental health, we have not been able to discover a single psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. So I think sleep has a profound story to tell in our understanding, um, maybe our treatment, perhaps our prevention of grave mental illness.
0: Yeah, it also has a profound story to tell about who we are and how we operate as a species. Yeah. Um, So now that you've scared the pants off of everybody. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) Hopefully you've scared their pants off and put their pajama pants on. Um, Let's just talk about uh, what we can do to make sure we get enough sleep. Before we dive too deeply into that, I want to ask, I I can imagine people in the audience are thinking, okay, I'm I'm listening to this. I'm in the midst of a lifetime of suboptimal sleep, in other words, I've got years of compounded suboptimal sleep. Am I screwed or can I, can I get my act together now? Right. Is the salvation. Yes. Um, the answer
1: is yes and no. Um, no in the sense that sleep is not like the bank. You can't accumulate a debt and then hope to pay it off at a later point in time. So you can't short sleep during the week and then try to sort of binge sleep at the weekend. It's not a credit system. Like that, so what has happened has happened, sort of in the past, retrospectively in the rearview mirror. Whatever damage was done by a lack of sleep um, has been done, but it's never too late to start sleeping better. And I'm not just sort of pulling out my pom poms and being sort of rah rah. We know evidence. So there's um, a study, and we we've done some of these studies too, where you take a group of midlife adults who have untreated sleep apnea, which is a sleep disorder with heavy snoring. Apnea simply means the absence of breath. It's where people are sort of sleeping at night, and then they're starting to snore, and then they stop breathing. If, by the way, you know of anyone who snores, or you know as a listener that you are snoring and having that go and see your doctor. It is a deathly disease and there are treatment outcomes there. It's probably the most underdiagnosed sleep disorder. We think about 80% of people who have it don't know it.
0: So the only way to know whether you should be worried about this is if your partner or anybody who's ever been near you when you're sleeping says you're snoring. So that's the first
1: indication. There are apps out there that you can sort of download that will listen to you and give you a, a snoring sort of measure. The other thing you can do is just go online and search for the term stop-bang. Now, <laughs> hear me out. <laughs> S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G. It's a questionnaire, and it allows you to assess your relative risk of sleep apnea. And you can fill it out online, and you can get a score, and that will also give you a ballpark estimate. But if someone is telling you that you're snoring, uh, and to the point where you're you could wake them up, then you definitely need to go and see a sleep doctor um, and see if you can sort of explore whether you do actually suffer from clinical grade sleep apnea. So we had this cohort of patients uh, and they had at that time undiagnosed uh, sleep apnea, identified it and then gave them a treatment, which is this sort of this small face mask that keeps the airway open so they stop snoring. It's called a CPAP? CPAP machine, yeah. yeah. stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, CPAP. And it turned out that about half of these um, patients complied to the treatment over uh, the course of a decade or 15 years, and the other half didn't. So it was sort of an experiment of nature, as it were. And what you find is that those people who complied to the treatment staved off the onslaught of Alzheimer's disease by 10 to 15 years relative to the group that was untreated. In other words, a causal demonstration that improving your sleep here by way of a treatment intervention can actually sort of de-risk your likelihood of developing Alzheimer's disease. So it never is too late
0: to start sleeping better. That's good to know. All right, so let's dive into some of your tips. Uh, Tips seems a little glib, uh, but your recommendations for improving our sleep. One of them is keep it cold. Yeah, and you're right with sort
1: of tips. I think I, people typically don't respond to re, uh, sort of rules; they respond to reasons. I think more than rules. So, um, if if you'll allow my scientific uh, barrage, to sort of I'll I'll tell you the the rule, and then I'll explain the reasons. Right. So, um, keep it cool is one um, piece of advice. Most people set their bedroom temperature or have a temperature that's too high in the sort of low seventies optimal seems to be about 67 degrees Fahrenheit or about 18 degrees, maybe a little bit more um, Celsius. Why is that? It turns out that your brain and your body need to drop their core temperature by about one degree Celsius or about two, two and a half degrees Fahrenheit for you to fall asleep and then for you to stay asleep. And it's the reason you'll always find it easier to fall asleep in a room that's too cold than too hot. Because the room that's too cold is at least taking you in the right thermal direction for good sleep. Um, So sort of set your AC if you have that ability. If it's safe to do so, crack open a window if you can't regulate the temperature, if that would help depending on how cool it is outside. If you can't do that, um, a standing floor fan to cool you is also helpful. The other way that you can hack the cooling system is and i I dislike the word hack but to have a hot bath or a shower which sounds completely counterintuitive to what i've just said but it turns out the reason most people sleep better after a hot bath when they get in there all of the blood comes to the surface of the skin you get rosy cheeks it's called mass vasodilation and then you get out of the bath and what happens is that your skin now with all of the blood at the surface acts as an enormous radiator And you just release and evacuate a huge amount of heat from your core. And so your core body temperature actually plummets after a hot bath. That's why you will actually sleep better. And we've done those studies and we've played around with body temperature. So keep it cool is is definitely one of the recommendations. I think a second is light. We are a dark deprived society in this modern era. And we need darkness at night to trigger the release of a hormone called melatonin. And melatonin actually helps tell your brain and your body when it's time to fall asleep. And if you're not getting sufficient sort of signals of darkness, for example, if you're using um, screens or phones, um, even just overhead lighting in your house can have an impact. That light essentially stamps the brakes on melatonin. And so your brain doesn't get the signal that it's nighttime. It still thinks it's daytime. So no wonder many of us struggle with sleep at night. And one way you can sort of do that firstly is to try and stay away from those devices at least an hour um, before going to bed. And uh,
0: stay away from your phone or, and tablet, but also the TV? Television, usually it's at a distance
1: that's not far enough for those sort of light signals, the photons to impact you. More impactful, however, is overhead light. And... The recommendation would be in the last hour before bed, just turn off half of the lights in your house. Not only is that, you know, going to help your electricity bill, but you'd be surprised at how soporific sort of dim light actually makes you. It's, a, it's almost a, sort of like a sedating influence. The reason is because it's helping your brain realize it's night and your brain is then starting to respond by releasing melatonin and getting you ready for bed.
0: What about people like me who like to read to fall asleep?
1: Reading is fine under dim light, but try to use a book. If you're using an iPad, um, try to put it on the reverse mode where the paper is black and the text is white um, rather than having that sort of strange and sort of white coming at you. They did a fascinating study back in Boston where they had people read a book um, for an hour before bed or read an iPad for an hour before bed. And what they found is that the iPad firstly delayed the release of that hormone that we were describing, melatonin, by three hours. So if I did that this evening here in California, it would put me much closer to Hawaii time in terms of my melatonin release than it would California. It would delay it. Secondly, the amount of melatonin that was released was dropped by about 50 percent, five zero. Third, they actually seem to have less rapid eye movement sleep, or what we call dream sleep. And finally, when they stopped using the iPad, that impact on sleep didn't go away immediately. It had a blast radius of several days, almost like a washout period. That's how impactful it was. So um, television, as long as it's at a distance, not so bad. If you're going to read at night, try and use a paper book. If not, if it's on an e-reader, then try to make it as dim as possible or do that sort of reverse with the the screen and the the text.
0: The other recommendation you have, which you really, I had never really heard before, but you really hit it hard, is regularity. That's right.
1: So going to bed at the same time and waking up at the same time. Um, No matter whether it's the weekday or the weekend, a lot of people do this, and it's what we call social jet lag, um, where you're going to bed somewhat early during the week because you have to wake up for, for work. And then at the weekend, you sleep in late, maybe by two or three hours. But then come Sunday night, you have to drag your sort of 24-hour body clock all the way back. And Sunday night is usually miserable. That's the equivalent for your biology of flying back and forth from San Francisco to New York every weekend, a three-hour time difference. It's torture on your biology, and it comes with health consequences. And our bodies are designed for regularity, including your sleep-wake rhythms. If you give it regularity, it often can take care of itself. So, regularity is king in that sense. It really anchors your sleep and sort of can improve the quantity and the
0: quality of that sleep. But you're asking people to fundamentally change their their social lives, perhaps.
1: Um, some of it may require a change in social life, um, and you know, I fall prey to this too. I'll typically try to have you know, earlier social engagements than, than later, not quite the early bird special. Um, But yeah, I think it's, if you want to prioritize that aspect of your sleep um, and you realize how important sleep is, you know, I'm not trying to tell anyone how to live their life. I can tell you about the science of sleep. And then when you know that knowledge, it's up to you how you'd like to live your life. What I would say is from the evidence that we have right now, there's a very simple truth. This is epidemiological studies and causal studies across millions of individuals. Um, The shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. Short sleep predicts all-cause mortality. Um, So I cannot think of any more efficacious, freely available, democratic, and powerful healthcare system than this thing called a full night of sleep. I mean, it is Mother Nature's best effort yet at immortality.
0: So what do you, I'm just curious about how you operate personally. What time do you go to bed?
1: So I'm sort of a a 10 to 10.30 to bed guy and usually starting to wake up around sort of 6.30-ish. So I I give myself a non-negotiable eight-hour opportunity of sleep, usually eight and a half hours. And again, that's not because I want to sort of seem like I, practice what I preach or I want to be, you know, post the child for sleep. If you knew the evidence as I do, it's purely selfish. You know, I don't want to live a shorter life, nor do I want to live a a longer life, but in sickness or disease. I want both a longer life and a longer health span, not just a longer lifespan. For example, my family has on both sides, a very strong history of cardiovascular disease. And we know that sleep is probably one of the best forms of blood pressure medication that you could ever want. And so, you know, I sleep that amount
0: for, for selfish reasons. And what do you do if you've got some, something you want to do on a Saturday night? Do you suck it up or do you say no?
1: Um, you know, if I will always try and find a way to, you know, leave early in a vaguely graceful manner. Um, people generally know what I do. And so I get a bit of a get out of card. Uh, get out of jail free card in that sense. Um, but I do I do really prioritize it. Now, it's not to say that I'm so puritanical that there aren't times when, you know, I'll stay out late and I'll get to bed late. I will still wake up at the same time the next morning because otherwise what starts to happen is you just drift forward in time. You go to bed late, then you want to sort of wake up late. And then that following evening, you're not tired at the same time. Mm -hmm. So what happens, you go to bed even later, which means that you wake up even later, and it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. At some point, you have to pay the piper. You just have to cut yourself off that next morning, know it's going to be a short night of sleep, know it's going to be a rough day the next day, and then get back into set the following evening. That happens more to me as with travel due to jet lag than it typically does informed by social life.
0: Right. Because you do travel quite a bit, I would imagine. And how do you, how do you deal with that?
1: So you can't cure jet lag. Well, there is a cure for jet lag, which is don't travel, yeah. <laughs> but you can treat it. There are actually ways that you can ameliorate the the effects. Um, lots of tips. Firstly, as soon as you get on the plane, immediately turn all of your clock faces to the time in the new zone where you're going to travel to. And then your mental mindset, your operating system is already in that time zone. And it's important because it informs you as to when you should sleep. A lot of people sleep at the wrong time, especially on long haul flights. So let's say I'm traveling from San Francisco to back home to London. Um, London, eight hours ahead. I get on the plane at you know 4 p.m. in San Francisco. Well, it's already 4 a.m. in the morning. So when I get on the plane, I should actually sleep in the first half of the flight, which is when everyone else in London is asleep. When I see other people typically sleeping is in the second or the last part of the flight, mm-hmm. which is now 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. which is when everyone in London is awake. And no big surprise when you do that, you get off the plane, And then come that following evening, when everyone else is going to bed at 10, 11, midnight, you're lying there in bed, having gone to bed at the same time, and you're wide awake, and you don't understand why. And the reason is because you didn't wake up until essentially 11
0: a.m. that morning. But how did you you get yourself to bed at 4 o'clock in the afternoon? So, you know,
1: one way you can try and do it is starting to wake up a little bit earlier and earlier in the week beforehand. So try to bring yourself back to that time. Second, stay away from alcohol um, and caffeine on the flights. They are served liberally, but they are the enemies of sleep. And these are probably two other big recommendations I have for people for how to sleep better tonight. Um, they make me deeply unpopular, um, but you know, I'm generally an unpopular person based on personality. But this makes it even even worse. Um, caffeine is, everyone knows is a stimulant. It's a psychoactive stimulant. And I think it's the only one that we freely give to our children without too much concern. But most people know that it keeps you awake. What you don't know is how long it's in your system. So caffeine has a half-life of about six hours and it has a quarter life of 12 hours. What that means is that if you have a cup of coffee at noon, a quarter of that caffeine is still swilling around in your brain at midnight. So having a cup of coffee in the middle of the day is the equivalent of getting into bed at midnight and before you turn the light out, you swig a quarter of a cup of coffee and you hope for a good night of sleep and it's probably not going to happen. Um, So be mindful of caffeine intake. I try to sort of recommend people, you know, cut it off maybe 14 hours before bed, 12 to 14 hours. The other thing is alcohol, (laughs) You know a lot of people will say, "Well, you know, I really enjoy a nightcap in the evening. It helps me sleep and I helps me fall asleep like that and I sleep, you know, it knocks me out." Sadly, alcohol doesn't do that. Alcohol is a sedative, um, and sedation is not sleep. But when you have a drink in the evening, you mistake the former for the latter. You think that you're actually asleep, but you're not. You're just simply blunting your cortex. So, you're not falling asleep faster. And if I were to look at the electrical signature of your sleep when you've had a drink in the evening and show it to you, it's very different than the signature of natural normal sleep. And the final two problems with alcohol is that firstly, it will fragment your sleep. So you wake up many more times throughout the night. Typically, they're so short that you don't remember them. You don't commit them to memory. But then the next morning, you wake up and you feel unrestored or unrefreshed by your sleep. And if you have that feeling, you know, and you're having a nightcap, you may want to put those two and two things together. Um, The other thing about alcohol, by the way, is that it's actually quite potent to, um, in terms of blocking your dream sleep, your rapid eye movement sleep as well. So um, the advice that I would give to people, which uh, is politically incorrect, is to go to the pub in the morning, and that way the alcohol's (laughs) out your system in the evening, and then there's no harm, no foul from a sleep perspective, but I'd never say that on on film.
0: (laughs) I rarely drink or drink Uh, either alcohol or coffee. And I would imagine the same is true for you. Yeah. So I, unless you're going to the pub in the morning.
1: Um, yeah. Sands pub trips in the morning. Um, I, I don't drink caffeine. I have decaffeinated coffee, uh, in the morning. I drink decaffeinated tea for the rest of the day. There was a time in my life when I was drinking, um, caffeinated black tea. I mean, I'm British kind of comes with the passport, but i was finding that as i was getting older especially as, as age progressed the impact of caffeine was increasing as, uh, and getting worse too uh, and that's in part because as we get older our sleep just becomes more fragile so anything that's trying to invade the sleep process just has an easier time of doing it as we get older so you know this advice is only becomes ever more i think recommended as the age clock advances and then in terms of alcohol, um, I've just never enjoyed the taste. Uh, so I, I don't really drink um, very much. So um,
0: God, I sound desperately boring. Well, I? I mean, uh, you're a good company or a uh, bad company. I don't know how to I think frame people it. people typically lose the will to live in front of me when they hear what I do. Or, uh, yeah. So. So, what if, so if we want to drink in moderation, what, what, do you basically we're going to have to pay the piper? Yeah, you
1: have to understand that, again, it's going to harm your sleep. Um, People have done just, you know, studies with a single glass of wine, as they've done with a single cup of coffee in the evening, and both of them separately will have that impact. So, you know, I'd love to say otherwise, but that would be scientifically untruthful, and I'm just a scientist to Give you the data, and then what you do with that data is is entirely up
0: to okay. you. Okay, I'm not inclined to kill the messenger. Let me just take you back onto the plane at four o'clock, though, when you're flying from San Francisco to London. Yeah. How I know you refrain from alcohol and and caffeine, but how I mean, I, the only way I'd be able to put myself down at that point would be to take a Valium. So what what do you do? So. As I said, one of the things I'll start to try and do is just, um,
1: thin slice my, um, sort of wake up time into bedtime in the week before, but you can only do that by about 30 or 40 minutes before it becomes unreasonable. The second thing I typically do is I will take melatonin, um, with a caveat though. So firstly, many people will use melatonin as a sleep aid here in America. It's not regulated by the FDA, so you can buy it over the counter, um, Most people take too much. They either take five milligrams or 10 milligrams. The danger there is that it actually shuts down your body's own production of melatonin. Mm. So aim for somewhere between half a milligram to three milligrams is really advised. Um, When you're stable in a new time zone and you're young and healthy, melatonin doesn't seem to necessarily help you with your sleep. The older that we get, the greater the benefit that we see with melatonin once you are stable in a new time zone. But for everyone, no matter what age, when you're traveling and you're in a different time zone within the first few days, that's when melatonin does seem to be efficacious. So what I'm going to try and do when I get on the plane is I will take three milligrams of melatonin. And then that tries to fool my brain into thinking, well, it was 4 p.m. And, you know, it's at least sort of five or six hours before the darkness signal is going to rise. And then all of a sudden it gets this signal saying, oh, no, I'm sorry. It actually is nighttime. Um, and that will help sort of bring my sleep onset earlier and allow me a greater probability. It's not guaranteed, but a greater probability of falling asleep. Um, meditation helps. And of course, you know, in some ways I wanted to discuss this. What's interesting, probably about four years ago, um, as I was writing, um, this book on sleep, I was not. Why we sleep. Why we sleep. Yes. Um, and uh, you don't have to uh, read the book. You just have to buy it. That's all. <laughs> That's all I ask you to do. Um, but and I was not a meditator at that point, And I'm pretty hard-nosed scientist. And I thought some of that meditation, you've spoken elegantly about this before, that it had this stigma associated with it. It was a bit woo-woo. And, but there was lots of data coming out on the benefits of meditation to help you fall asleep and fall asleep faster. And so I started doing my research just so that I could write about it in the book and describe the science. And it was quite powerful. And it was only getting more robust as an effect. So I thought, well, I'll start. Maybe I'll start to try it myself because, you know, I'm not immune to a bad night of sleep. There are times when I you know can get anxious and uh, stressed with work and doesn't help me with my sleep. And worse still, when you know everything about sleep, by the way, you become the Woody Allen neurotic of the sleep world. You're lying in bed. At this point, I'm thinking, okay, so my prefrontal cortex is not shutting down. My brain is not releasing enough melatonin. I know that my other hormones are not, you know, at that point, you're dead in the water for the next two hours. It's it's a terrible (laughs) affliction. So I started to meditate. And I found it incredibly helpful. And that was four years ago. And you know, um, just as I was walking in here to do the interview, I got my notification from Ten Percent Happier, and I'm not (laughs) trying to. And I was saying, you know, it's it's
0: time via meditation. So you don't because we're doing this interview in the middle of the day, San Francisco time. So you don't meditate right before bed. I'll I often um,
1: will strategically meditate uh, at bedtime Um, if I know and I can sense it. I know when I'm stressed. I know as many people will that you've just got that Rolodex of anxiety and concern. And you know that sort of feeling in this modern day and age, we're constantly on reception. Very rarely do we do reflection. And for many people, the only time you do reflection, unfortunately, is when your head hits the pillow. And that's the last time that you want to start doing your mental processing. And I think that's the reason that if you look at sort of you know meditation and meditation apps, if you pull out usage statistics, what you'll see is this incredible spike right around bedtime.
0: I've got our uh, tech team in the room here, and they're they're nodding their heads. They're nodding yes, their heads. Yes.
1: And you, and what's happening is that people are self-medicating the problems with sleep by way of medit. It's beautiful. You know, it's it's almost as though it wasn't initially designed for that, but the audience you know suffering from this modern era of sleep difficulty found when it was helpful and it's helpful at all times of day as we know but one of the times that it's helpful is at night
0: i find it a little surprising and i'd be interested to hear you walk through a little bit of the science on this because if you translate the word buddha it means awake yeah so i don't know that the original i'm not intimate with intimately familiar with the mind of the buddha if i was my life would be quite different. But I don't know that the original design of the practice was for sleep. What I do notice is when I go on meditation retreats where I'm meditating all day, every day, my sleep goes down to just a tiny nub and I feel great. So I, I'm, I've i always been sort of confused by the fact that meditation can help sleep, given that when you're doing it at a high doses, you don't seem to need much of it.
1: It's interesting that, and I've looked at that data actually, sort of there, I've often being asked that question, there's this concept where if you're meditating and doing it intensively, your sleep need goes down. The data actually doesn't seem to be quite in that direction or supportive of it. There was a study that came out just a few years ago from Richie Davidson. who yeah, Former I think he, guest on this podcast. Yeah, um, fantastic neuroscientist. And they looked at sleep after a period of intense meditation. I think it was about eight hours
0: during the day. I don't think that's enough. And um, it's to, got, to create that. that it's got to be several days into a ten-day meditation retreat, okay. seven-day meditation retreat. You've got to be really deep in. And then what happens and is then that you're just waking up at changes. two in the morning. Yeah. And you, first of all, you get incredibly vivid dreams. I don't want to say this as if it's true for all human beings. I'll just say, in my own experience, and in the experience that's been related to me by many people I know, you have v- very vivid dreams and you sleep very little. And it's not like you wake up and you're exhausted. You're just Awake. Right. Yeah. The one theory I've heard floated by my, a neuroscientist friend of mine, Jud, Dr. Judd Brewer, who's not a sleep expert, as that I know of, but has done quite a bit of meditation and neuroscience, is that. And I don't know if he was speaking scientifically when he said this, and I hope he's not mad at me if I quote him because I'm doing it via paraphrase. Something about the fact that when you're suffering less, in other words, when, you, when your mental churn goes mm. down, you may need less sleep. I don't know how that lands with you, but just passing it along.
1: I mean, I think that would be good logic if if the only thing that sleep supported was our mental health, but sleep supports, as we've spoken about, all of your physiological systems, your cardiovascular system, your immune system, your thermoregulatory system, um, you know, your reproductive system. Um, so all of those things continue to need to be tended, um, even if your mental health mm. is still robust and good. Um, so I, I don't think there is you know What we do know, if you have people do an intensive period, for example, of learning, there actually is an increased uh, demand for sleep. Or if people who are currently sedentary and do a lot of physical activity, it typically helps with their sleep and they sleep more. And in this sort of study, and I think it's really interesting what you describe, which is how long... Do you have to go with intensive meditation to actually see this change? What they found was that after you know an eight-hour intensive um, period, there was actually an increase. There was a 10-minute increase in the amount of sleep and a 10-minute drop in the amount of time that they were awake. So if anything, there was actually a driving demand for, for more of that sleep.
0: I buy that because but, just based on my own experience, the first day of a meditation retreat, you're trying too hard.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: So, so it could just be a mental effort yes, demand yes. and therefore
1: increased demand for sleep as a consequence. The other um, thing that
0: happens on a meditation retreat is when you're doing intensive meditation is you realize how sleep deprived you are and yeah. how the busyness of the world, you're just run ragged, even yeah. if you're getting an, you know, technically enough sleep. I don't want to, again, I'm, I'm saying you too liberally here. I'll just, I want to rephrase, rephrase it in my own experience. I find the first couple of days of, of a retreat can be quite sleepy because uh, I've described it as being on a plane that's hitting a foamed runway. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, I've been moving so fast. And all of a sudden, things are slowing down. And it's You're just all washing out your it. sleep debt. That's You're right. Trying to get
1: over uh, that's right. this chronic debt that you've been building up. Now, as I said, you, you can't, it's not like the bank. So if I take you this evening and I deprive you of a full night of sleep, eight hours, and then I give you all of the recovery sleep that you want on a second night and a third night, yes, you will sleep more than is typical. But do you ever get back all of that eight hours that you lost and we just let you sleep and sleep and we just measure you for days and days? You never get back that full hours. You may only get back about 50 percent of the sleep that you've lost, um, which is fascinating. And we can describe why I think that that's the case. But to come back about meditation, I think it's, um, it's interesting, too, that perhaps what also changes from what I've heard is when you want to sort of be falling asleep and waking up, you're, sleep, you're sort of going to bed. Some people have been sort of suggesting they go to bed earlier and they're waking up earlier. And it brings us to a point, which is if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, for example, whose way of life has not changed for thousands of years, and we've studied them, too, Not only do they sleep, you know, the sufficient amount, somewhere around about eight and a half hours total during the 24-hour period, and they usually do that in what we call biphasic sleep, where they have about six and a half to seven hours at night, and then they have a siesta-like afternoon nap routinely. But what's interesting, it's not just the amount of sleep that's different between their lifestyle and modernity as we sit right now. It's the timing of their sleep. Have you ever thought about what the term midnight
0: actually means? I've heard you say this before, <laughs> yeah. and it's you, you were on a mutual friend, Peter Atia's podcast, and you brought this up, yeah. and it really hit me.
1: Middle of the night. Yes. Yeah. yes. And for them, when you look at their sleep phase, it really is quite close to the middle of their sleep cycle. But for many of us, you know, it's the time when we think about. You know, checking email one last time or really thinking, you know, I should probably stop watching Netflix at this point and, um, or Amazon Prime. No, I'm not uh, trying to target either one. Or Disney Plus. Uh, or Disney Plus. Um, uh, who have you been speaking to? That you, <laughs> you know, understand my, uh, my preference. So um, I think, you know, it's fascinating when you dislocate yourself from the trappings of the modern world, and I, you do that when you go on retreat, not that I've actually been, but I know um, I've, I've heard a lot about it. Um, I think that's when you start to actually reunite yourself with so many of our natural homo sapien tendencies, Mm -hmm. one of which is a normal sleep cycle and a normal sleep phase. Yeah, because you start
0: Um, to go to sleep shortly after the sun goes goes down. Goes down, yeah.
1: Um, And they've done these studies with healthy people where they've said, you know, what time do you normally typically go to bed? What do you think is your sweet spot? And they would say probably like 11 p.m. These are young kids. Um, Then they just said, okay, here's your phone, I'm taking it away. Say goodbye to your family and friends. We're going off on a camping trip up in the Rockies for two weeks. No electricity, not even a car light, no nothing. And surprisingly, they started to sleep somewhere around about nine hours after they washed them out. They took away that sleep debt to begin with. And they acclimated to about nine hours, which is what we think eight to nine hours is the typical human sleep need. And again, they were going to sleep when they said 11 p.m. is my sweet spot. They were much closer to about 8.30 p.m when they finally finished the end of the study. Um, but to come back to your point though, and the the comment on the word Buddha and what it actually means and the surprise about sort of meditation being perhaps helpful to sleep, I actually think it's helpful for at least two reasons based on the data. Um, the first thing that I think it's helpful for is the balance of your nervous system. And we have two branches of our nervous system. One is sort of the fight or flight branch called the sympathetic nervous system. The other is um, the sort of the rest and digest, the quiet branch of the nervous system called the parasympathetic. What we see is that um, people who suffer from insomnia, they seem to be too far um, sort of switched over to the fight or flight branch of the nervous system. And that part of your nervous system needs to be shut off for you to fall asleep. And we see this very commonly now at my sleep center where it's this sort of, you know, the exhaustion economy is creating this wired and tired phenotype of people where people are coming in and they're saying to me, look, I am so desperately tired. I'm exhausted, but I get into bed and I'm just so wired that I can't fall asleep. And part of that reason is because this branch of the nervous system is too revved up. It's like a car being in neutral, but your foot is all the way down to the floor Mm. and you can't shut it off and you're never going to fall asleep in that state. But what's lovely about meditation is that it seems to, through breath work and also through sort of a, a practice on the mind, it actually helps you shift out of that fight or flight branch of the nervous system mode back into the more calm, quiescent branch of the nervous system. That's the first thing that we know is sort of mechanistically the way or one of the ways that meditation works. The second is a related system in the body, which is called the HPA axis, which is the stress axis in the body. And the stress axis releases a stress chemical called cortisol. And cortisol normally has this beautiful daily rhythm. It starts to rise in the morning. It peaks in the middle of the day. And then it should drop down at night and fall to almost its lowest point in the middle of the night. And as it's ramping down, that decrease in the stress hormone, cortisol, helps us fall asleep. But if you measure that in people with insomnia, it starts to fall down in the evening. But then right around bedtime, it gets jagged up again, as if the stress system and the cortisol release is increasing. And we see that in people who are struggling with falling asleep or staying asleep. But if you look at the studies with uh, meditation, it's wonderful that levels of cortisol, because of that stress axis, seem to actually be ramped down. And so there is a second way that I think meditation comes in and just simply quiets the body, both from a nervous system perspective and also a stress hormonal perspective. And then I think there are benefits on the mind too. But downstairs in the body, those are the two reasons that I think we're actually seeing meditation being efficacious as a sleep aid, you know. And the sizes of the effects are considerable. There's great study done just across the way um, at Stanford, where they took a group of insomniacs and they placed them on a mindfulness meditation program for eight weeks. And they were meditating, I think it was around about, um, it's probably about 30 to 40 minutes a day. Um, so it was a non-trivial amount. And after eight weeks, those people responded by about a 40-minute reduction in uh, the amount of time it took them to fall asleep. Now, to put that in context, sleeping pills at best can give you, you know, eight to 10 minutes. Placebo gives you six to seven minutes. So sleeping pills really aren't much above um Uh, placebo, and they are very much not recommended anymore now because of the deathly consequences and the carcinogenic association with sleeping pills, which I'm happy to discuss. But in this study, a remarkable drop of, you know, a 40 minute savings in terms of your time to fall asleep and their sleep efficiency. You know, they didn't, they weren't waking up as much and they felt better rested the following day. That's a remarkable benefit. You know, if you had a drug that was giving you that kind of benefit, it would be a blockbuster.
0: Yeah. you've talked about two things I want to put a pin in and get back to uh, sleeping pills and also naps but since we're on meditation what's the move if you've gotten into bed and are struggling to fall asleep do do you recommend getting up and going to sit somewhere to meditate or turning your phone on and meditating while you're in bed what's how do you, what do you think we should yeah, do it's
1: a tough situation I think
0: I would offer
1: three things that people, three sort of practices that you can try. The first is that you can try to meditate in bed, that if you are practiced enough and you can walk yourself through a a meditation, um, you can certainly try that and stay in bed. Um, The only danger, though, is um, we typically recommend that people don't stay in bed awake for longer than about 15 or 20 minutes. If you haven't fallen asleep within 20 minutes or you've woken up and you haven't fallen back asleep, don't stay in bed. And the reason is because your brain is this incredibly associative device. And very quickly it will learn that your bed is the place of being awake and not being asleep. And this is why patients will sometimes say to me, look, I I don't understand it. I'm watching television in the evening and I'm falling asleep on the couch. And then I get into bed and I'm wide awake and I don't know why. And the reason is because you've learned the association that your bedroom is the place of being awake, not being asleep. So the way that you break that association is by not staying in bed awake for very long. You get up, go to a different room or different part of the room if you don't have that um, luxury and in dim light, just read a book or try to meditate. And only when you're sleepy and there's no time limit should you go back to bed. And that way you will relearn the association that your bed is the place of sleep. And I think the analogy there would be, you know, you would never sit at the dinner table waiting to get hungry. Why would you lie in bed waiting to get sleepy? And the answer is that you shouldn't. So the recommendation would be take your meditation practice, you know, outside of the bedroom. And that way you're not associating that bad context of being awake with your bedroom itself.
0: Outside of the bedroom or the bed? Because I meditate in the bedroom, but in a chair in the corner. But you,
1: you... That's, I think, you know, I think that's somewhat safe as long as it's you're not thinking of the bedroom writ large as a trigger. That's the only time that the, the entirety of the context itself can be learned and imprinted. And if that's the case, then you really need to shatter that association and go somewhere different. But if that's not the problem, if you're not struggling, then staying in the room and just
0: sort of practicing there is just fine. So we, you, it seems like you're saying the bedroom should be kind of sacrosanct. I mean, my wife, I sometimes, she'll sometimes work on the bed. Sounds like that's a bad idea. Bad
1: idea. Because then again, you're learning the association that when you get into bed, it's a place of active cognitive thought and engagement. Right. Um, so your bed really should be like a, a cave. You know, it should be dark, cold, and free of technology.
0: What's your pre-bed ritual? And what other, what are the what's what other sort of pieces of sleep hygiene do you recommend? So I
1: typically have a wind down schedule of about an hour. So, An hour before bed, that's it. I stop working. Um, Even though work is what I love and adore um, and I have an obsession with, I just know that um, I'll still have that fizzing mind if I just work straight up to the point of sleep. You know, I may fall asleep, but I know it will come back to bite me throughout the night because of that Rolodex of sort of concern and anxiety. So an hour before bed, I just cut it short I'll usually either read or just watch something light on television. That's where I sort of get my sort of um, fiction hit from. And I think you've said this too, you know, I I typically don't read fiction books anymore. I consume sort of nonfiction. And so I use television as as my uh, fiction hit. Um, And then I'll usually start sort of preparing for bed. At that point, I've usually dimmed down all of the lights in the home. I haven't been looking at screens um, I've removed about half of the light bulbs in my bathroom because that's, you know, usually the last point of contact mm. before you go into your bedroom. Mm. And you really don't want that glaring. Um, and then I'll just sort of make sure that my room is cold at least an hour before I'll start a fan. I have a fan inside of my room. I typically am one of those people who gets hot at night um, in the thermal sense, um, just (laughs) FYI. Um, and I I have no chance of the, 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 the other. So, um, and, and at that point I've cracked windows open. The bedroom is usually then nice and cold. I have a very dim light. I mean, a light that you could probably almost not read by in my bedroom, just so that I'm not cracking my shins on the, um, on the bed frame as I go in. Um, So I've already started to scale down the light infusion that I'm having. And at that point, I'm pretty sort of free of my work baggage. If I feel as though and I can tell it, I've got that jag that I haven't processed and haven't haven't let go of something that's on my mind. At that point, I know I'm just going to either stay outside of the room or like you, I have a chair in the corner and there I'll just sit and I'll just usually do about a 10 minute meditation. And that really helps me.
0: And so what's the beef with sleeping pills?
1: Sleeping pills are, no, I should say I'm not anti-medication and I'm not against big pharma companies. I know the scientists there who do a lot of work on those drugs and everyone wants to help people and help disease and sickness. Unfortunately, however, the sleeping pills that we have right now do not produce naturalistic sleep. They are a class of drugs, and I'm not going to name them because they're all much of a muchness in terms of how they actually operate on the brain. They're all a class of drugs that we call a sedative hypnotics, and it comes back to alcohol. Once again, sedation is not sleep. So when you take those sleeping pills, those prescription sleeping pills, I'm not going to argue that you're awake at night. You're not. <laughs> but to argue that you're in naturalistic sleep is an equal fallacy. The Now, you could argue maybe that's not so bad if it didn't come with with health consequences, but unfortunately it does. There've been some remarkable studies out of UCSD where they've tracked thousands of people taking sleeping pills across just several years, compared them to thousands of match controls. Firstly, what we see is that you have a significant increase in your mortality risk if you're taking these sleeping pills. Every
0: day or occasionally, or both? So
1: they found there was a significant increase in mortality risk even if you were taking somewhere between three to 17 pills per year. (laughs) so it was quite striking and then it scaled the more that you and by sleeping pills i
0: know we don't want to name names but they're pills that are specifically designed to sleep or what about um, uh, an anti-anxiety benzodiazepine so yeah so these
1: drugs um the sleeping pills have very similar qualities to them. They all target a particular type of receptor in the brain called the GABA receptor, and I won't bore you with what it is, but it's essentially the stop signal in the brain. And all of these drugs, the anti-anxiety drugs included, these benzos that you speak about, um, they all essentially tickle the same sort of brain inhibiting receptors just
0: like sleeping pills. So I have to get up really early on Saturday and Sunday mornings to anchor Good Morning America. And so one night a week, my doctor will let me take a benzodiazepine. Uh, You would say flush those down the toilet. Um, I can
1: send you the scientific evidence and you can make the judgment call yourself. Um, But the evidence is not favorable. Um, The other component of it is that they also found a relationship with cancer, And it's Mm. scaled um, with sleeping pill use as well. Now, I want to also note, however, that those studies aren't causal. They're simply associational. And I can give you a counter argument. For example, it could be that people who are taking sleeping pills have had bad sleep all of their life. And that's why they have a shorter lifespan. That's why we know that sleep is strongly, uh, lack of sleep is strongly related to numerous forms of cancer. So much so that recently the World Health Organization, by the way, classified any form of nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen. Jobs that can induce cancer because of a disruption of your sleep weight rhythms. So we know that that evidence between a lack of sleep and cancer is strong. So maybe. The reason I'm seeing this association in the literature is just because those people who are now taking sleeping
0: pills have had bad sleep all of their life, and no wonder they're more likely to die. It's not the pills themselves. Yes, but your argument against the pills is not limited to the carcinogenic uh, effects. It's, it's the fact that you're not getting, as you say, naturalistic sleep. In other words, right. you're not truly asleep. You're not getting the rest you need.
1: Yeah. And we'll probably never be able to do those causal studies in humans because the evidence is so powerful of a link between your death risk and your cancer risk that ethically it may not be possible. We have some evidence in animal studies, though. One, um, one of the critical things with sleep is that it helps actually with learning and memory. So when you learn information during the day, it's at night during sleep when you essentially hit the save button on those new memories so that you don't forget. And sleep actually helps increase the strengthening of the circuit, the memory circuit. And one of the studies that they did in um, rats um, was looking at the effects of these sleeping medications. So they had a learning experience um, and then they let the rats sleep and normally what you see with healthy, normal sleep is this strengthening of the memory circuit. But then they also dose them with sleeping pills. Now, the rats slept longer. So you would imagine that if sleep is good for learning and memory and it helps strengthen the memory circuit, then if they've slept more, they should have an even stronger memory trace. The opposite was true. Not only did that sort of sleeping pill induced sleep not strengthen the memory, it actually Unwired the memory circuit, there was actually a fifty percent reduction in the strength of the memory Mm -hmm. circuit. So there's a good example that you can be thinking that they're helping you sleep, but the benefits of that non-natural sleep are not only um, sort of not sort of increased or amplified. If anything, they're actually taken away. It's
0: it's interesting. I invoked this name before, Peter Atia, our mutual friend, who you did a fantastic six-hour three-session. He is uh, you did a six hour three session podcast that I recommend people listen to with him on sleep uh, and one of the things that I heard you say is that you're you're pretty conservative to say the least about sleep aids but you you think if I'm getting you right if I heard you correctly you think there may be maybe some promise to CBD
1: so right now I think this I mean, there is a. If you think
0: about our conversation
1: regarding meditation apps and the self medication <laughs> of sleeping difficulties with meditation, the same seems to be true with marijuana. That if you look at some of the usage, a lot of it happens at night to try and help people, again, medicate their difficulties with sleep. Now, there's been a lot of work on the psychoactive component of marijuana, which is called THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. And the data there is not favorable. It may help you lose consciousness more quickly. So it may fool you into thinking that you're falling asleep faster. But THC, unfortunately, actually disrupts your rapid eye movement sleep, again, your dream sleep. And that's, that's not ideal. Also, what you do is you build up a tolerance. And so when you stop using Not only do you typically go back to the bad sleep that you are having, but you can often have what's called rebound insomnia, which is that your sleep is even worse. And it's not good to build up a crutch and a a sort of a tolerance and a dependence on a sleep aid. However, CBD, which is the non-psychoactive component of marijuana, which is now starting to sort of explode on the scene, the studies there look interesting, I think I would say. We don't have anywhere near enough data yet for me to sort of, you know, be in public saying definitely recommend CBD. But firstly, there seems to be evidence that it can help sleep and not necessarily come at a cost in the same way that THC does. Um, we also don't seem to typically see the develop of, development of tolerance and thus a withdrawal profile when you stop, which is beneficial as well. And in the studies in animals, there again, there seems to be a benefit. And those studies in animals, and I know for some people, animal studies, and I, I completely understand it, you know, are difficult to, to feel good about. But one of the upsides of those is that it's very difficult to sort of think about a placebo effect there because, you know, they don't know what they're getting. And they typically have a sugar pill or, you know, a, an active drug. And there's, it's difficult to sort of argue that that's a placebo effect there, too. So. I think, firstly, there needs to be a lot more work that should happen. And I'm actually kicking around the idea of just doing this myself, you know, trying to do a Kickstarter or get some funding. You know, if anyone out there would like, you know, has uh, a little bit of money in their pockets and they would like to try and fund this type of study and do it scientifically, I really think it would be a good service to the field. Because if it's promising, even if it's got a stigma now, we need to know about it because people are desperately struggling with sleep. And I'm committed to trying to help them. And if this is a promising thing, we need to find it out, but do it scientifically.
0: Especially since there don't seem to be many other sleep aids out there that you can recommend comfortably. Right. Exactly.
1: And so that's, you know, if it does hold promise, we should know. If it holds dangers, we should should know. I think the other big problem though right now is that just as with melatonin because it's not regulated by the FDA even though the FDA is now starting to get much more interested in CBD and it's starting to think about legislation um, it's a wild west out there so you know having a trusted brand is very difficult to come by and there's lots of brands that are sort of saying you know you scan this QRI code on the bottle and it will give you a lab report from an independent and, and I think that's a good start but even then, you know, how can you trust it in an unregulated space?
0: As promised, though, let me ask about naps. You pro-naps or against naps? For and against.
1: (laughs) If you can nap regularly and you're not struggling with sleep at night, then naps are just fine. That's the biphasic sleeping that you referenced from. Yeah, exactly. And you see this in Mediterranean cultures as well, sort of the siesta-like behavior. But... If you can't nap regularly, and especially if you're struggling with sleep at night, the advice is don't nap during the day. And again, this is a rule, but let me sort of unpack the reasons behind that rule. From the moment that you and I woke up this morning, a chemical has been building up in our brain. That chemical is called adenosine, and it's a sleepiness chemical. And the longer that we've been awake, the more of it that builds up, the more of it that builds up, the sleepier that we feel. So it's a good, healthy sleepiness game. It's what we call sleep pressure. But then at night, what's wonderful is that the brain gets the chance to essentially jettison all of that healthy sleepiness chemical. And it takes about eight hours to remove about 16 hours of accumulated adenosine. So after about eight hours of sleep, what you should do is wake up feeling refreshed without sleepiness because you've given the brain the chance to sort of remove that sleepiness. And by the way, that's probably one of my best tips for if you, how do you know that you're getting enough sleep? If you didn't set your alarm or your alarm didn't go off, would you sleep past your normal alarm
0: time? And if the answer is yes, you're clearly not getting enough sleep, but I digress. Well, just on that digression, and I should have asked this earlier, what is the minimum amount of sleep that we should be aiming for?
1: Somewhere between seven to nine hours for adults over 25 years. Okay. Um, the number of people, based on the data, that can survive on less than seven hours of sleep um, without showing impairment, rounded to a whole number and expressed as a percent of the population, is zero. Okay. But coming back to adenosine <laughs> naps and, for a, a happier, <laughs> jollier story. Um, so, what I was describing there is this kind of removal of that healthy sleepiness as we sleep, until so we wake up refreshed. But here's the danger with naps: that you've been building up all of this healthy sleepiness, and then you take a nap in the afternoon. And it's like a pressure valve on a cooker. You will release some of that healthy sleepiness. And that can mean that when it comes time to fall asleep at your normal bedtime, it's a struggle because you don't have that same amount of healthy sleepiness weighing you down, wanting to push you into sleep. And that's why I always recommend if you are struggling with sleep at night in general, then don't nap. You want to build up all of that healthy sleepiness. So it gives yourself the best chance to get to so just sleep. Just
0: power through, even if you feel like crap, just power through.
1: Yeah, and avoid the caffeine. Because what caffeine does is that it actually comes into the brain and it latches onto the receptors of adenosine and it hijacks those receptors and it essentially hits the mute button on the sleepiness signal. That's how caffeine works. It's no big surprise that they sound very similar at the end of their chemical names, caffeine adenosine. Caffeine races in. And it essentially just picks up the remote inside of the brain for sleepiness. And it does hit the mute button. So now, even though you've been awake for 16 hours, your brain with caffeine circulating inside of it says, oh, hang on a second, I thought I'd been awake for 16 hours. I'm not getting that signal anymore. I feel like I've only been awake for eight hours. And that's why you get the jag of of alertness. And that's why caffeine
0: can be damaging to sleep. Okay, so there are people out there who struggle mightily to get to sleep. You know, insomnia is real and a lot of people deal with it. And I know you see these folks directly in your, uh, I would imagine in your sleep center. So what is the recommendation for people of chronic insomnia? So right now,
1: the first line recommendation is not sleeping pills. And this is not my recommendation. It was a re- recommendation made in 2016, a landmark recommendation by the American College of Physicians. They said that, and they reviewed um, hundreds of placebo-controlled studies, based on the weight of the evidence from sleeping pills and the nominal benefit above and beyond placebo for most people, together with the dangers that we've spoken about, the first-line recommended treatment for insomnia must not be sleeping pills. It must be something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI. And here you work with your therapist. It's a psychological intervention. And... Across several weeks, it ends up being just as efficacious as sleeping pills in the short term. The benefit on sleep is just the same. But what's better is that when you stop working with your therapist, the sleeping benefits continue for now. I think the last study um, showed a f- up to a five year benefit that was maintained. Whereas with sleeping pills, it's a little bit like with THC. When you stop them, you go back to Not just the bad sleep that you are having, but typically your sleep is even worse when you come off those sleeping pills. So if you are struggling with sleep, um, you can go and speak with your doctor and ask about a way to try and seek out cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It is typically reimbursed here in the United States uh, under many health insurance policies, um, increasingly so. You can just go online. You can go to the National Sleep Foundation And there you can sort of Google around and you can learn more about CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, wonderfully
0: efficacious. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. Okay, so that was part one. And as I said at the beginning, that we recorded this several months ago, the part one. And then I had a bunch of other questions that I wanted to ask Dr. Walker and I also wanted to test my own uh, sleep, so I got a ring. It's called the Aura Ring, O-U-R-A Ring. There are other – I'm not pitching this particular product. There are lots of sleep trackers out there. That's just the one that I happen to get. And so in this part of the episode, which we just recorded recently, we, I sent uh, Matthew my data, and, and we go over that. We also talk about the impact of irregular schedules on sleep – We talk about uh, the impact, uh, a new study he just did about sleep and anxiety. And we talk about a fascinating and I suspect controversial idea of a sleep divorce where couples sleep in different rooms. And I think you'll be surprised to hear where he comes down on that. So here we go with part two of Dr. Matthew Walker. Thank you for, for doing round two. Apparently, we didn't scare you off.
1: <laughs> it's a true pleasure and delight to be chatting with you again. And um, I think it's the opposite. I was surprised that you even wanted to uh, to speak again. I think some people have described both my voice and personality as one of the best prophylactics known to man. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's a delight to be back with you. Um, so I will take every invitation I can get.
0: Not true at all. In fact, I have a million. I, I walked out of our last meeting with a million more questions. So I've written them all down. So pr- brace yourself. I'm Wonderful. coming at you with a lot of questions. Questions start at um, ten
1: fingers on buzzers. I'm ready.
0: Okay. Um, all right. So let's start with I. I wore this sleep ring for a while because I was too much of a a chicken to go do, get a sleep study because um, I really didn't want to do that. Uh, but we should talk about sleep studies in a second. But you you've had a chance to look at my data from my sleep for a couple of weeks. So I'd just be interested to hear your response.
1: I think it's really interesting because sleep is one of those things, firstly, that we are largely not aware of because we're typically not conscious, not at least in the waking sense of it. And so it's one of those areas of the sort of the wearable or the quantified self movement that I think is is quite informative. There is a side of it that can be problematic where people get overly anxious because they start ruminating about their data and they can start catastrophizing. But for the most part, I think it's largely a good thing. And your data was actually quite interesting. There are I think a number of important features um, that the public actually can benefit from. The first is that your sleep opportunity, meaning the amount of time that you are consistently in bed, is fantastic. You typically have about uh, an eight, even a little bit more eight hour sleep opportunity. And that's great because we know from the National uh, Sleep Foundation, recommendation is for most adults, seven to nine hours. So let's be conservative and say you're trying to get seven hours of sleep in total. But one of the things that people conflate is time in bed is time asleep. And that's not true. And in fact, that's what your data was suggesting too. Um, When you are healthy, if you have good sleep, you typically have what we call a sleep efficiency score. And that sleep efficiency, if you're healthy, is about 85%. What does all of this mean? Um, there are three things. Sleep opportunity, sleep time, sleep efficiency. Sleep opportunity is the amount of time that you're in bed. And as we said, you have a sleep opportunity routinely of about eight hours, which is which is wonderful. Um, then if you have a sleep efficiency of 85%, which is healthy, and you're in bed for um, eight and a quarter hours, then you will get your minimum of seven hours of sleep and i think that's one of the problems people will say you know i go to bed at uh, 11 p.m and i wake up at 6 a.m for work and that means that i got seven hours of sleep it's not true you had seven hours of time in bed but even if you have a healthy sleep efficiency probably means that you only got about six and a quarter hours of sleep and we saw that with your data that you were getting about eight hours of time in bed But because of your sleep efficiency, which was perhaps a little bit lower than we would expect, it was sort of around about um, 80%. Um, And again, this is just based on a device that um, I think is a good device, but it's not quite the accuracy that we would have in a sleep lab. But let's take it for, for truth. Your sleep efficiency was a little bit lower. So on average, your total amount of sleep that you were getting was a little bit less than seven hours of sleep a night. So I think we can start to think about ways of trying to perhaps improve the efficiency of your sleep. Your time in bed is great, but we just need to increase the amount of time that you're asleep whilst you're in bed.
0: So what would you say I could do? Because I've I've definitely been tracking the data uh, myself. I look at it every morning and I've noticed, too, that uh, I'm in bed for eight to nine hours and often I'm, I, I'm very rarely cracking the seven hour mark of actual sleep.
1: I think there are probably a number of things um, that we could think about. Some are just physical, some are mental. So typically the things physically that um, keep us awake more during the night, especially as we get older, unfortunately, are bathroom breaks, getting up to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And then the second is physical pain. They're the two things that typically people struggle with from, um, from a bodily perspective. And we could think about those for you. Um, the second component, of course, is mental. And you know so much about this, which is, um, and the, those two are not sort of independent, by the way. Often you get up, you go to the bathroom, you come back, and now the mind just sort of unleashes this Rolodex of anxiety. And you start thinking, OK, well, what didn't I do today? What should, have I, what should I have done? What do I need to do more of tomorrow or less? And at that point, then it shifts from being a physical fracturing of your sleep on to now a mental impairment of your sleep because of that catastrophizing, because of that rumination. That's where things I think like meditation are so powerful just to try and take the mind off itself, as it were, and see if you can just try to relax back the body, and bring down that fight or flight branch of the nervous system, which gradually creeps up the more that we sort of go through that anxiety process And when that branch of the nervous system is active, it's very difficult to get back to sleep. But things like meditation will actually quiet that branch of the nervous system down. And that's when it's easier to start to fall back asleep at night. So I don't know if any of those two pillars, the sort of the physical components or the mental components, play into the time that you're awake during the night. Do do either of those two feel relevant?
0: Yes. Uh, So for me, I just jotted down there were – Three things that I think are getting in the way of sleep efficiency. One is exactly what you said about getting having to go to the bathroom. I'm nearly 50 and apparently I have the bladder of, a you know, like a kitten. So I I go to the bathroom. I get up and I have to go to the bathroom. So that's annoying. I don't know what I can do about that. The other is um, noise. So we have a five-year-old um, and he gets up a lot in the middle of the night. He won't accept me. Um, which is bad for my ego, but sometimes good for my sleep. Um, but he's you, we hear him on the on the baby monitor, and uh, my wife has to get up and go,, um, often sleep with him or or comfort him. and so, but I wake up when that happens. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing is restlessness. It, it, this is usually as I'm trying to fall asleep, but I often I always meditate before I go to bed. Uh, and then, and maybe often stretch too um and but I, but even after doing both of those things, I find that there's can be from sixty to ninety minutes of tossing around, and um yeah, so the, those are the three things
1: and I think for you know the bathroom breaks it's just it's very difficult that's just one of the things that we all know as we start to get older um increases in frequency how to deal with that. There are some medications that people um, can prescribe to try and help. But the other thing is to try and think about what is my fluid intake sort of in the evening? And often the trick is not to actually decrease the number of cups or glasses of um, fluid that you're taking in. Fool your brain into thinking, I'm still having the same number of those glasses of X or Y, but just try to half the amount of the fluid volume that you pour into those in the evening and in that way, you sort of psychologically still think, no harm, no foul, nothing has changed. But decreasing the amount of that fluid can sometimes also help as well. But medications are there too, um, should people want to explore that.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty militant about not drinking any fluids after six or seven. Yeah. Um, so I, maybe it's something where I want to explore with medication, but um, yeah, um, it's not awesome.
1: And the restlessness, it, yeah, that that's difficult, too. Um, you know, I think there are um, certainly stretching is something that helps. But it's is it a restlessness of the body or is it body. associated with the restlessness of the mind? The mind is quiet. It's just the body yes. that's restless. Yes. Um, yes. And do you uh, are you physically active during the day? Do you typically work out um, during the day?
0: Yeah, well, I'm a, a borderline narcissist who has to look at his own face on television all the time. So, yes, I am quite active in the gym. It's not pretty, but uh, consistent six to seven days a week of uh, workouts, okay. uh, usually early in the day because I know that working out later in the day is, it can disrupt the sleep. Um, so, But I am pretty active.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so I think, you know, trying to think about the body probably going into repair as it moves into that sleep phase may be associated with some of that restlessness. Hmm. Um, and then just doing more of the stretching and rolling out as well. Um, the muscles can also help uh, in that regard.
0: Like a foam roller.
1: That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because some of that restlessness may just be the muscles in that state.
0: One thing that I've found helps, and I, I wonder if this might cut against your advice, but what I've found that helps with restlessness, there are two techniques I've used. One is just get back out of bed and meditate again, although sometimes I'm too restless to even sit still. But the, the other is to read, um, and I've found that reading especially some boring Buddhist book um, that is both boring and, and puts me in touch with fundamental truths that have a way of relaxing the mind mm. can um, knock me out. It can take a while, but that can work.
1: And I think the latter is almost a distraction. It's moving the focus of your attention from perception of the body to actually internally thinking within the mind. And when you shift that, it's almost like a, a sort of a spotlight focus from the body to the mind. Then all of a sudden, the you know, the entire organism is ready for sleep. Um, and I think that's definitely one of those things that can help.
0: The the other thing we talked about was noise. Um Obviously, I'm not going to give my kid up for adoption, so that's not an option um so I'll have to live with that for a little while but But my wife and I do wake each other up quite a bit because when I go to the bathroom she she's a light sleeper, she often wakes up and sometimes she comes to bed later than I do, and that process will wake me up um and so you've you've before we started rolling you you told me about something called a sleep divorce. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, so it's something um, that is now becoming a little bit more common as people openly speak about this, which is having a sleep divorce to potentially prevent you from having a real one. Um, And we know that from survey data, anonymous survey data, that um, up to 30 percent of people in couples in partnerships will report sleeping in separate rooms and of those remaining, let's say, 70%, there's a non-trivial proportion of them who will um, go to bed in the same uh, location, but will wake up in different locations. And I think this tells us that there is some kind of attention here going on um, in the public regarding partner disruption of sleep. Um, and in fact, it's something that myself and my partner, She um, she's a very light sleeper and she typically has a longer sleep need. She seems to have a sleep need of around about nine hours a night. My sleep need is about eight hours a night. Um, so we're often offset in terms of going to bed and also waking up, which would always cause problems and sort of me getting into bed after she's asleep and she wakes up and getting up early. So we agreed to go through a sleep divorce. Um, and I think one of the problems with having and it I should, you know, there should be a better term for it because it's a very negative connotation in that sense for a very beneficial, potentially good upside. But the stigma is that if you, people say, well, goodness, you know, if you're not sort of sleeping together, then you're typically not sleeping together uh, in that regard. Mm-hmm. But often the opposite is true, that when a couple starts to get good sleep, um, what we see is things like reproductive hormones actually improve, um, your physical vigor and vitality improves, the emotional connections uh, and the emotional stability of your relationship improves, all of which typically leads to actually improvements in the intimacy and the physicality of a relationship. Um, so I think that's that's one aspect. It's not a one size fits all. I think some people find great comfort in having a partner with them at night um and there's a huge benefit there. So I think it's find which of those two buckets that you may fit in and explore it. I think if you are going to go through the the sort of the sleep divorce as it were you have to think a little bit more about what it actually means in terms of that intimacy link. What most people miss about getting in sort of to, to bed together is just that moment where you're saying goodnight or you're having a cuddle, and then in the morning waking up and saying good morning to each other. But what's interesting is that for everything in between those two bookends, you're mostly non-conscious and not aware unless you've got sleep disruption going on. So you can sort of hack the system, as it were, if you do have a sleep divorce, just try to find a system where you, you know, whoever gets into bed first, the other person will come in and say good night to them. So you have that routine. And then whoever wakes up first, you can go into the kitchen, make your uh, decaffeinated tea or coffee, and then the other person can text you and say, I've just woken up, come and say good morning to me. And you can still get the benefit of those two beautiful moments, but also have the benefit of getting full, undisrupted sleep in between.
0: I love this concept, and I'm grateful to you for bringing it up and and, and for having the the courage to talk about your own um Personal situation. I think there's real value in and you not presenting yourself as the you know perfect you know avatar of sleep hygiene. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I, I it's funny because I've been thinking about this a lot and feeling sheepish. The idea of sleeping in a different room for my wife feels like Downton Abbey or uh, you know The Crown, where you see these stodgy British couples that sleep in different rooms. Um, uh, although at least in Downton Abbey, they seem to have a healthy relationship and. I worried about that. So, you know, I, I, for example, some nights when I'm restless and I want to read so that I can fall asleep, and my wife doesn't like the light. Some nights I will go sleep on, go fall asleep on the couch, and then it'll it's not uncommon for that to last all the way into the morning. And then my son and my wife wake me up, and I go back into the bedroom and, and sleep for another forty five minutes, and. I've worried what message is this sending my son? Is he going to think that we're, you know, mommy and daddy don't love each other? We do. We have a great relationship. But I just need to sleep, and I don't want to mess up her sleep. And so I, I think it's it's quite freeing for me, at least personally, for you to talk about this thing as a potentially healthy move.
1: Yeah, I think people should feel that liberation. Um, and you know, it's so diff- sleep is such a stigmatized topic in and of itself. You know, it has this. Uh, It has an image problem and we associate it with, you know, people being slothful and lazy and then take a step down. um, Speaking about a couple and intimacy, um, that's perhaps, you know, even more of a violation of the norm. But I think people have to understand that sleep is just such a biological necessity. And when the two of you are getting good quality sleep, you'll just have a seemingly better quality relationship on all aspects of those things. So, I think there is, um, you know, a discussion to be had. And as I said, it's not necessarily for everyone. But the more that we're open about this and the more that we speak about this, I think the more people will actually start to come with their own stories. You know, when I've mentioned this before, it's a public talk or a public speaking event it will always be those people who wait till the very last moment to the last questions and then they sort of sidle up and they whisper to you you know i'm actually one of those people and <laughs> we actually do sleep you know as if it is just this you know this this terrible embarrassment and it, it shouldn't be um because it's it's just simply people trying to obtain a biological necessity
0: yes amen um so back to my data so we were I can't remember what the numbers were, but it's something like a sleep opportunity of north of eight and a s- actual sleep time of around six and a half with all the caveats that apply to the reliability of uh, data that comes from a ring rather than a sleep study. Um, if if I lived the rest of my life with those numbers unchanged, would I be in at real risk for all of the um, – health problems that you've enumerated uh, that that are associated with uh, insufficient sleep?
1: I think what we know from epidemiological studies, which are not, you can't infer causality from those. These are simply associational studies. But what we know is that r- usually relative to groups who are getting sort of seven to eight hours of sleep a night, Um, risks for things such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, um, aspects of mental health as well, um, together with uh, cancer and Alzheimer's disease, those things typically start to increase um, once you start to go lower than those amounts. And so I think trying to think about ways to improve that sleep efficiency, I think it wouldn't, and this sounds counterintuitive, I wouldn't start necessarily suggesting increasing the amount of time that you spend in bed because you would think, well, okay, if I need to get more sleep, Mm. all I should do is just spend more time in bed. I think that that's probably the wrong suggestion because you mentioned it before, one of the things that we're very mindful of in sleep medicine is not being in bed awake for too long. Mm. And your point about saying, if my body is restless, I typically will just get up and go somewhere else. That is a great piece of advice. And the reason is because your brain is such an incredibly associative device. It will start to learn the association that your bed is this place of being awake rather than being asleep. And so breaking that association, as you suggested that you do, is a very good piece of advice. Um, And that way you will actually start to relearn that your bed is the place of being asleep. And I think the analogy there would be that you would, you know, you'd never sit at the dinner table waiting to get hungry. So why would you lie in bed waiting to get sleepy? And the answer is that you shouldn't. So I think constantly sort of practicing that um, and enforcing this improvement in your association with the bed being the place of sleep may also help. Paradoxically, we could almost take it to the opposite end because there is a practice in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. I'm not suggesting that you actually have insomnia. I don't think you, you do, which is actually you start to um, constrain the time in bed to enforce better efficiency. So, for example, let's say that looking at your data, you're in bed for eight hours and you will typically spend about an hour and a half of that eight hours awake but then I were to give you only two hours of sleep tonight and then keep you awake throughout the following day. And then I put you back into bed that following evening. What we would typically see is that you will actually spend a lot less time awake that following night because you have this sleep rebound where you try to recover from that sleep debt and you don't repay at all, but you'll try. And so We do a sort of a more subtle version of this where we can actually say, let's have you spend perhaps only seven and a half hours of time in bed. And gradually your brain will learn, my goodness, I used to have Mm. this luxury of an eight hour in bed sleep opportunity time. And, you know, I was driving at about 80 percent sleep efficiency. Well, if it's constrained, I now need to actually sleep in a much more efficient way to get what I need and you can actually improve your sleep efficiency and in fact improve your sleep duration by constraining your sleep opportunity a little bit. I'm not suggesting that that's the case for everyone. Most people are in the opposite bucket where they give themselves too little sleep opportunity, but that's another way that we can try to play with improving sleep efficiency. It sounds paradoxical, but spending less time in bed for those people who are spending at least seven hours or more time in bed can actually mean more time asleep.
0: So I'm hearing three things that you think potentially I could work on given my data, such as it is, Uh, one is um, trying a medication to that would reduce the trips to the bathroom. The other is along with stretching using a foam roller. And the third is and this would be the most sort of um, aggressive, which would be perhaps examining a, a restriction around sleep opportunity
1: that 's right, yeah, and I think all of this you know it 's very difficult to do you know firstly, a diagnostic from um, so many miles away, and also yes. one would want to sort of make sure that we got you in the sleep laboratory, so we could actually yes. see you know are there any other sleep disorders that were perhaps missing that could be constraining your sleep efficiency you know we 've already spoken a little bit offline about snoring, and i don 't think that that 's an issue for you, although it is an issue for for many people. Um, Things such as less restless leg syndrome as well. Um, There's other things where people just get these stretchy legs and sort of just need itchy, need to move them around and that can disrupt sleep quality. So, but I think you're right. I think those things, trying to implement those things. Um, the other aspect of sleep efficiency is um, alcohol and caffeine. And I know that we've spoken a little bit about this, but for the most part, um, tell me a little bit about those two things and how they play out throughout the day and the evening for you.
0: Neither I don't do yeah. either of
1: them. Yeah, so that's one of the other things that can certainly constrain people's um sleep efficiency. They can be spending a lot of time in bed, but um but that's fantastic. In, in that case, um no problem to think about those there.
0: Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying that you're 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 on the West Coast, I'm on the East Coast. You've looked at a little bit of data, but I'm not in front of you, and I haven't done a sleep study, so you can't do a total diagnostic, and I wasn't uh, uh, expecting that. But let's let's talk about the value of a sleep study. I really didn't want to do it because I was just – I had these phantasmagoric projections of spending all night with all this stuff, all these yeah, wires. Spaghetti monster on your head. Yes, yes. and I'm going to have to get up and pee a million times. I'm not going to get any sleep. The next day is going to suck. Um Am I wrong about that and what's the what's the real can you can you really how much can you really measure if I can't imagine I'm actually going to get that much sleep in one of these sleep studies?
1: So typically those sleep studies will help uh, clinicians understand um, what potential sleep disorders that you have. And we've already mentioned really the, the sort of the heavy hitting three. The first is snoring or what we call sleep severe sleep, uh, sleep apnea. The second, restless leg syndrome. Um, the third is just sort of insomnia, really having difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep or waking up the next day and feeling unrefreshed and unrestored by your sleep. So Often, a sleep laboratory test, as you mentioned, is not going to give you the perfect snapshot of what that person's sleep is like at home. It's more of a diagnostic tool to say, okay, come on in and let's see if there's anything glaring in terms of um, a sleep disorder that we can see. And the sleep disorder will typically still be expressed in a sleep clinic, even under conditions of a bad night of sleep. So, that's really where those sleep clinic studies are usually probably uh, beneficial for people. And by the way, I mentioned those three sleep disorders, but there are many tens of different uh, sleep disorders that we now recognize. So um, they are just the three probably largest, but there are many
0: others. Um, so what is your view? You, you talked a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear you say more on wearables. I, I wore this ring called an Aura ring. O-U-R-A ring. Yeah, I have one. Too, um, you have one too. Okay. Yeah,
1: I wear one. Are you and I have no affiliation with the affiliation, company. Uh, with okay. the company. Um, I, I, I have uh, no connection with them. Um,
0: what do you think about wearables? Is this the one you would recommend? Or are others? Are there others you would recommend? How much stock should we put in the data that we get from wearables? Et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. I, I think about wearables um, in two sort of different verticals. The first is about, obviously, accuracy. Um, And right now, for the majority of wearables that you place on uh, your wrist or, you know, on your finger or you strap to your bed, um, they all typically try to do the same thing where they're measuring your respiration and your heart rate and um, using algorithms. They can try to stage the different types of sleep. You know, are you awake? Are you asleep? And if you're in sleep, are you in light non-REM sleep? Deep non-REM sleep, or in rapid eye movement sleep, or dream sleep, and for the most part, right now they're all much of a muchness out there. Um, they probably have about a you know seventy percent ish accuracy if you look at some of the data. Um, so I think that's one way of thinking about them, and that's why. You know, I'm a little bit reticent to fully embrace the data that we have from you and saying, you know, that is exactly what I would find in my sleep laboratory. Mm. I think it's a good proxy. um, And I think uh, the ring does a pretty good job of that. But is it 100% faithful? It's not there yet. No. Mm. So I think that's one way of thinking about it. What is the accuracy of these devices? The other way I think about it, though, is from a more pragmatic perspective, um, I think one of the difficulties with wristwatches or even headbands is that when we go to sleep, we typically take things off. We don't put things on. Mm. And as a consequence, if you're going to wear something that tracks your sleep, it's really only going to be meaningful if you're constantly doing it, you know, multiple nights a week and for many months, if not years. But with some devices, if you don't feel very comfortable with them, if you have to put them on your head or around your wrist, then the stickiness of them, the adherence to those devices decreases quite significantly. And as a consequence, I, I think that can be a challenge for people. The reason I like the ring as a form factor is that people are not uncommonly going to bed wearing rings. And in that regard, I think it's less intrusive. So I think that as a result is perhaps a better form factor for tracking sleep than some of these other devices, but they're the two different ways that I think about wearables in sleep technology right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I uh, I I don't have any problem wearing the ring at night. I did get tired of wearing it during the day, so I just only wear it at night. Yeah, um, which limits the amount of data I can gather on the the picture. Uh, it can get of your overall activity levels and et cetera, et cetera. But I just don't feel like wearing it during the day. Yeah. What, what yeah. about, I'm sorry, did you have something you want to say? No, no,
1: that? no. I think that that's a perfectly good policy because I think for the most part, and I don't want to speak for the company, but I, you know, I think that one of the prime focus uh, areas right now is sleep. And so I think that if you're going to wear it at some point, the night and sleep is the, the place to do it.
0: What about people who, I mean, these are expensive. So if I don't have the resources to get a, a tracking device, w- what would you recommend? At that point, maybe just get a prescription for a sleep study?
1: Um, Yes, certainly these devices, none of the um, commercial devices right now are claiming to be diagnostic from any clinical perspective. So I think if you feel as though or you're worried that you have a sleep disorder, that's absolutely the thing to do. Go see your doctor, see if you can get a sleep test. Um, If snoring or sleep apnea is the potential concern you may actually not have to go into a sleep laboratory now they have these at home diagnostic tests where they send you a box out and you sort of you've got instructions and you can strap on a chest band and put something on your finger and put something up your nose and uh, and you can do it at home so there are lots of more convenient ways that continue to emerge if you want those types of sleep diagnostics some of which are happening now at home
0: there are a couple things that you mentioned in this second interview that I want to follow up on that don't necessarily flow out of that last question, but I just want to make sure I get to them. One is the the idea that a problem for folks is not waking up refreshed. And I will say, even when I get a, a quote unquote good night's sleep, where even if I'm close to or even north of seven hours of sleep, it's not uncommon for me to wake up and still feel pretty groggy. It's not necessarily that I feel awful, but I yeah. it's not like I, I'm leaping out of bed. How big a problem is that?
1: Not leaping out of bed? That's a huge problem. I like to see people (laughs) leaping um, constantly. If you're not leaping, come see me. Um, No, uh, there are two aspects, I think, to clarify here. The first is feeling refreshed throughout the day. So I think if you feel as though you're constantly needing caffeine to sort of keep you away, and I know this is not the the situation uh, for you, but... When we speak about feeling refreshed and restored by your sleep, we're really talking about the entirety of the day, not that sort of Goldilocks time um, in the first hour or hour and a half after you wake up. It's very natural for people to have that grogginess in the morning. It has a name. It's called sleep inertia and we know some of the neurobiology. I actually am someone um, like you. I suffer from quite severe sleep inertia. So, you know, uh, my partner, she will sort of know that basically in the first hour in the morning, don't talk to me too much. I'm not the best version of myself. I'm, you know, just pretty groggy and a little bit grumpy. Um, And that's just sleep inertia. And part of the reason is that when we're asleep, Different parts of the brain start to switch off, almost as though they get this recycle and this chance to rest and reboot. And one of the parts of the brain that gets um, taken offline is a part of the brain that we call the prefrontal cortex that you've spoken a lot about um, on the podcast and in your writing. And that part of the brain is the last part that really starts to sort of come back online after we wake up. So think of your brain almost like um, an engine in a classic car that you can't just kind of, for some people, you know, turn the key and then just floor it and drive it hard. You actually need um, the engine to warm up a little bit. Uh, You need to get it up to operating temperature and then it's good to go for the rest of the day. So if that experience resonates with people listening and resonates with you, Dan, then I would say there's perhaps nothing too much to be concerned about regarding restorative sleep or the opposite, which is unrestorative sleep. The problem is more about saying, well, I just don't feel refreshed or restored or fully awake for most of the day. If that's the case, that's more of a problem. I think your Let's say that you're getting your solid seven hours of sleep a night by way of having at least an eight, uh, eight and a half hour sleep opportunity. Why would it be then that even if you're getting seven hours of sleep, you still feel unrefreshed throughout the day? Another possibility there is a mismatch between when your body wishes to sleep and when you are giving it the chance to sleep. And this comes onto a topic that we call your chronotype. So are you a morning type Or are you an evening type or are you somewhere in between? And often what you'll find is that evening types, people who would like to go to bed, you know, if I were to say to you, if you're on a desert island, you have no commitments, nothing to wake up for, what time would you typically like to, I think, drift to go to bed and what time would you like to wake up in the morning? That's your typical natural biological chronotype. And it turns out that it's largely genetically determined or there is a significant part of it that's genetically determined. You don't really have control over being a morning type or an evening type. It's not really a choice. It's gifted to you by your genetics. And this comes back to the idea that you may be positioning your sleep opportunity window at a time that's not really aligned with your biological preference for when you would like to sleep. So if you are an evening type who likes to go to bed at midnight and wake up at 8am, but you're going to bed at 10pm and waking up at 6am, well, they're the same in terms of total sleep opportunity time, but the quality of sleep that you will get as a night owl trying to sleep on an early schedule won't be as good as the quality of sleep that you would be getting if you were going to bed when you wanted to and waking up when you wanted to mm-hmm. and that will lead to a feeling of being unrestored during the day so that's a very long description but sleep inertia perfectly normal we understand the biology but if you're feeling unrefreshed throughout the day you may want to think about asking yourself well what type am i am i morning type evening type And am I in synchrony with my biology or am I sort of misaligned with my preferential biology?
0: Got it. And thank you for using the term schedule. I appreciate that. Um, (laughs) Schedule. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The other thing I wanted to loop back to that you mentioned earlier was the link between lack of sleep and anxiety. And I know your team just put out a study on this. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit.
1: Thank you. Yeah. So. There is certainly an emerging literature now on the relationship between sleep and anxiety. For um, a while, it's really been um, in one direction. We certainly know that people who are um, anxious, who are just innately anxious, who have what we call high trait anxiety, typically don't sleep as well at night. And I guess that's no big surprise. If you're wired, if you're nervous, if you're anxious, you're not usually going to be consistently having a good night of sleep. But we actually wanted to ask the, the sort of the opposite direction. What if we were to disrupt someone's sleep at night? Can we actually see if that causally increases their anxiety the following day? That's exactly what we found, that if you restrict someone's sleep or you deprive them of sleep, you get an immediate increase in the amount of anxiety that they're experiencing. Um, for some of those people, Uh, somewhere between 20 to 30 percent of those people, after just one night of no sleep, they had actually transitioned to a level of anxiety that would be classed as a clinical disorder. So it was a non-trivial increase in their anxiety. Um, Second, we found perhaps what the underlying biological cause of that anxiety was. Um, When you're not getting sufficient sleep, that prefrontal cortex that we spoke about before, which is almost sort of like the the CEO of the brain, it, it it's a high-level controller of our deep emotional brain centers. That part of the brain, when we're not well-slept, actually is impaired, and as a consequence, those deep anxiety-triggering emotional centers of the brain actually erupt in their activity, triggering the anxiety. In other words, if you're not getting your sleep at night, the brain isn't well positioned to control those emotional anxiety triggers the following day. And so you get this anxiogenic, this escalation of anxiety during the day. What we also found, however, is that when you record people's sleep at night and you give them the opportunity to get the sleep that they need, what is it about that sleep that actually provides an anxiolytic, a calming influence on our anxiety? And what we found is that it's actually the deep quality of sleep, uh, what we call deep non-rapid eye movement sleep or deep non-REM sleep. The greater the amount of your deep sleep at night, the greater the next day reduction in your anxiety. So sleep and particularly deep sleep offers this sort of almost palliative soothing balm on the brain. And it just takes the sharp edges off those sort of anxiety triggering events. Um, and so it's perhaps not time that heals all wounds, but it's time uh, during deep sleep that provides the yeah. type of emotional
0: convalescence. It's so interesting and anxiety is a huge problem in our culture right now, so this is useful data. We're in the middle on on this podcast of a big January uh, series about uh, healthy habits and one of the questions that my colleague Samuel uh, urged me to ask you is What is the impact? Samuel uh, John's one of the producers of the show who, with whom you've been in contact. He's fantastic, he, yeah. He is fantastic. One of the questions he asked me to ask you was What is the impact of sleep on all of the other habits that we, many of us, are hoping to improve, um, such as exercise, diet, meditation?
1: So, there's, um, there's some really good data on both um, diet and exercise regarding sleep. What we know is that when you start to undersleep, when you start to get sort of um, six, five, four hours of sleep a night, um, firstly, your appetite will start to increase. And the reason is that there are two hormones that control our hunger one is called leptin, and one is called ghrelin. And despite sounding like hobbits, they are actually real hormones. Um, <laughs> leptin is the hormone that is released. And when it's released, it says you're full. You don't want to eat anymore. You're satisfied with your food. Ghrelin does the opposite. Ghrelin is the hunger hormone. It says you're not satisfied with your food. You want to eat more. Continue to eat. And when we um, deliberately deprive people of sleep or short sleep them, let's say for a week and put them on four or five hours of sleep for a week, we see increases in um, the hormone that says you're hungry, you want to eat more, and that's ghrelin. But a lack of sleep will impair the other hormone that says, no, you're full, stop eating, don't need to eat anymore, which is leptin. So they go in these deleterious opposite directions it unleashes your appetite, and you start to eat more. The second problem is that it's not just that you start to eat more; you also have a change in your preference for what you want to overeat when you're underslept, and specifically, you you lean towards increasing your consumption of um, simple carbohydrates, sugary foods, things like ice cream, um, candy. And also, you increase your intake of heavy-hitting, stodgy carbohydrates—bread, um, pasta, pizza—those types of things as well. So, there's some really good evidence that when you don't get the sleep that you need, you can actually start to increase your appetite. You can start to sort of move towards what we call an obesogenic profile. But mm. the good news is that if you're getting the sleep that you uh, that you need, then you can actually eat. Uh, a certain amount, and feel satisfied with that food. And so it can actually be a solution towards prevention of obesity, or at least it can be a weight gain um, sort of preventer. We also know that people, for example, who are dieting, but they're not getting sufficient sleep, um, almost 70% of the weight that they lose will actually come from lean muscle mass rather than fat. And what we found is that when people are underslept, the body becomes particularly stingy in giving up its fat. It's much more likely to give over things like muscle and hold on to fat, which is exactly the opposite of what most people want to do when they're dieting as well. So when it comes to diet, certainly we know that getting the sleep that you need is going to promote you towards um, a healthy sort of body mass index um, and a healthy sort of dietary profile. Um, exercise is another great one um, we know that when people are getting better sleep firstly their motivation to even exercise increases that's probably one of the biggest um, factors that simply your desire to actually get on the treadmill or go out for a run or go out for to the gym even go on a hike that increases secondly when you do exercise the intensity of your exercise is typically higher when you've been getting good sleep Um, And there's lots of components of that that people have looked at. Um, Your sort of your muscle contraction, your applied force, even things such as how good your lungs are at expiring carbon dioxide and bringing in oxygen. Um, Those things are benefited when you're getting sufficient sleep. In fact, even your body's ability to perspire when you're exercising, which turns out to be a critical thing, cooling your body improves your ability to um, work out more intensely, perspiration is impacted by insufficient sleep. So on all of those factors, we know that a good night of sleep is going to make you more likely to exercise. And when you do, you're going to do it in a more intense, more efficient fashion.
0: Yeah, not to brag, but I'm looking at my data right now. I got a, I got six hours and 47 minutes of sleep last night. And this morning, I actually hit a personal record on Peloton. So, wow, okay. um, uh, so let me ask uh, some questions from the perspective of a parent. Um, I'm interested in both sides of this. One is, do you have an, a view on how we can get our kids to sleep through the night? And second, what do you what's your advice to parents who are sleep deprived?
1: So on the latter, on sleep deprived parents, I, it, it's such a difficult um, issue I think there are, you know, the reason that it remains a problem in our society is that we don't typically have good solutions. I think if you're lucky to have a partner, um, then trying to think about, for example, going back to chronotype, who could take the early shift and who could take the late shift? Mm. You know, I think firstly, understanding what your biological tendencies are if you have that luxury independent of work, which sometimes is not the case. But, you know, if you're someone who says, look, I can sort of stay up pretty late i can take that night shift if it happens from here to here and then you're someone who typically will sleep deep in the first half of the night unlike me where i would like to be sleeping late into the morning if you take the second shift we can try to pattern match that sort of coverage as it were based on our biological tendencies that's one way of doing it the second particularly for new parents um Try to get the sleep that you need whenever you can. So even if that involves daytime naps, um, and we can speak a little bit about naps because they do have a double-edged sword, but under those conditions where you are chronically sleep-restricted, just trying to get your sleep whenever you can can also be beneficial too. So I think it's it's a very difficult problem to solve, however. Um, for children, um, perhaps a little bit easier there is. There was a great study that was published probably about a year or two ago, and they were looking at the factors that for young kids seem to promote better sleep. Um, The first was regularity. So trying to put your kids to bed at the same time and having them wake at the same time. And they typically naturally will wake at the same time. But going to bed at the same time, regularity was absolutely critical, as it is for adults, by the way, too. But that was one of the key factors. Another one of the interesting factors was trying to remove as many toys from the bedroom as possible. And this comes back to something we were speaking about, which is how does your brain associate itself with Mm. the bedroom and sleep? And if there are sort of lots of toys around the bedroom and sort of these stimulating triggers... Even a child's mind will learn that the bedroom isn't necessarily the place where sleep happens. It's a place where sometimes sleep can happen, but sometimes, you know, exciting play can happen too. And by removing those toys out the bedroom, they seem to find an improvement in sleep. Um, and then also the other component is physical activity during the day and also daylight. You know, I think. I've spoken um, at times both in the book and uh, in public about how we are typically a dark-deprived society at night, and that's true, and that darkness is critical at night to release a hormone called melatonin to help regulate our sleep. But I actually think I've done a very bad job of speaking about the opposite, which is the critical importance of light during the day. And there's some data now starting to emerge that how much light that you're exposed to, both as as an adult and as a child, can actually promote better sleep at night. So thinking about wake and sleep as sort of really nice, um, low uh, valleys during the night and high peaks during the day. You want lots of darkness at night to, to help you get deep sleep, and that's the same uh, for children. And then you want lots of light during the day to take you to a nice peak of wakefulness. Um, and sort of keeping it in that sort of sinusoidal wave will help you rather than having just this sort of more flat line where you know, uh, constantly stuck inside during the day. So your brain is confused. It sort of gets this electrical light, which is nowhere near as powerful as daylight. So it's not quite sure what's going on during the day. And then at night, we switch those lights back on and it's confused again. Is it nighttime? Yeah. Is it daytime? Same confusion for children too. So those things can typically help with child sleep and also human sleep, with the exception of the uh, the bedroom toys, which hopefully are not present in the adult room. <laughs>
0: I'm intrigued by the, the the more daylight thing. is interesting. I mean, it, it it it's it gets me thinking. I work in rooms mostly that have a lot of windows, so there is daylight there. But it also is another reminder for me that you know, going out and taking a walk, even if it's cold, um, and it can be pretty miserable here in New York City in, in December and January and February and beyond. Um, but taking a walk might have really salutary effects on a number of levels.
1: It's very true. And, you know, we often think, well, even on a cloudy day, you know, it it seems about as bright as the office that I'm in right now. And that's not true. It's log orders of mag- magnitude um, stronger in terms of the light, even on a cloudy day relative to a sort of a somewhat um, vaguely well lit office room.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you about was the impact where upping our sleep could have a big impact. Could could affect really positive changes uh, on society. So, school start times for kids. Should we be looking at later school start times for kids? Um, what about medical residents? I was I'm married to a woman who was a medical resident, um, and that was challenging for her uh, to get through that. Um, and also, we've got uh, lots of car accidents in this country, and that's a big killer. And could could more sleep help in, those, in that area too?
1: Gosh, yeah, great topics. I think certainly, you know, the later school start times is um, is a really prescient issue right now. Uh, here in California, Governor Newsom just signed into to law that for um, high schools, uh, the first period bell cannot occur any earlier than um, 8.30 in the morning. In other words, shifting the start of schools later. And there's now such a great collection of data that supports this logic. We've seen this time and again that when schools delay their start to a later point, um, firstly, we typically see academic grades improve. We know that sleep is essential for functions of learning and memory. So that's not really that much of a surprise that academic grades would increase when you give the kids the chance to sleep more. What was perhaps more surprising is that we also started to see secondary effects. Firstly, we started to see that truancy rates actually decreased, as well as absenteeism rates. Uh, We also saw that psychological and psychiatric referrals started to decrease. And then the other aspect was, in fact, um, that you could argue that the life expectancy of some students actually increased. And the reason is because one of the leading causes of death in late-stage adolescent teens is road traffic accidents. Mm. And here, sleep matters enormously. What we've typically seen in these prospective studies, when a school changes its times, pushes its times to to later, in that narrow age range of just 16 to 18 years old, on average, we see about a 40% reduction in car crashes that following year. Um, A great example happened in Teton County in Wyoming. They shifted their school start times from about 7.30 in the morning to almost 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was actually a 70% drop in car crashes that following year which, you know, to me is is just striking. If you put that in context, the advent of ABS technology in cars, anti-lock braking systems, that dropped accident rates by about 20 to 25%. But here is a simple biological solution, you know, getting enough sleep, that can drop accident rates on average by 40%, in some cases, even more. Um, so I think there the evidence is really quite clear. If we as educators Um, really truly wish to educate and not risk lives in the process, then I do worry that we are failing our children with this model of early school start times and we're going to get success in delaying them. Um, And for any parents out there, there was a study published just last year from MIT. They tracked the sleep of students across an entire semester using these sort of wristwatch devices. And what they found was that The sleep quantity and quality in the last month before the exam and the last week before the exam explained about 25% of the success of those students on the exam, on the final exam. So yes, studying is important, but up to 25% of that grade can be accounted for simply by how much sleep those students were getting. So it's a, I think it's a powerful force that we need to continue to to lobby on and, and make change on.
0: And what about um, medical residents or people who – well, actually, let me let – me, before I get, unleash you there, I'll just read um, the aforementioned Samuel Johns, producer of the show, uh, one of the producers on the show. His wife, Haley, is a resident. She sent this question in, which I think we might have sent to you in advance. As a medical resident, she writes, when doing a call shift where I work a 28-hour shift – If I have the opportunity to nap for 15 to 20 minutes spurts during the night, should I do that? Or is it better to power through the night and then reset once the night shift is done? Parenthetically, she notes, a more broad question could be, what advice do you have for people who work on irregular schedules or even the regular night shifts?
1: So for night shift workers, um, what we're starting to see now is the the frequency with which you flip-flop back and forth between day and night shifts, that's the worst scenario. So all of us in society need to be incredibly grateful for people like this. You know, if I have um, a burst appendix at four o'clock in the morning, I desperately want someone there to operate on me and help me. So I'm, I'm immensely grateful for their service. But we do know that night shift work is associated with worse health outcomes. We know that night shift work that is constantly, um, as I said, going back and forth between sort of different shift um, uh, periods around the 24 hour clock face is the worst form of night shift work. And trying to at least sort of go on the night shift for a, a long period of time and then come off for a long period of time or long as long as you can. That seems to be the better approach to that. Coming back to medicine in general, there the data is actually quite powerful. Firstly, we know that medical residents who are working a 24 to 30 hour shift um, can make upwards of 460% more diagnostic errors in the intensive care unit. We know that if you're having elective surgery and the attending surgeon has slept less than six hours in the previous 24, there is a 170% chance of a significant surgical complication happening relative to a surgeon that's been well-slept. And then finally, there was a fascinating uh, statistic coming from a study at Harvard Medical School, and it brings us back to car traffic accidents. They found that medical residents, after working a 24 to 30-hour shift, when they finish that shift, and then they get back in their car and they drive home, They are 168% more likely to get in a car accident themselves driving home because they are underslept, finding themselves perhaps back in the emergency room from which they came, but now as a patient Mm. rather than an attending uh, resident. So I think that area is an area that needs to have change. We've seen some of that change, but I don't think it's quite enough yet based on the data.
0: I mean, the the idea of irregular schedules is um, the problem of irre- irregular schedules r- resonates with me because I one of the things that I think skews my data is that there s- Friday and Saturday night I don't get a lot of sleep because um, you know most nights during the week I go to bed at ten or eleven pretty regularly, but on Friday and Saturday nights I. I try to go to bed much earlier and I have to be up at 3:45 to anchor weekend Good Morning America. A job I love, but the sleep ramifications are quite severe. We I wonder could if you see have that any... in
1: your data on sort of, yeah, you know, that those nights it dropped precipitously on those two nights and that's ex- I knew exactly what was happening, but yeah.
0: What do you what, what would you recommend because I'm not the only one. I mean, a lot of people have irregular schedules. It,
1: it's so challenging. And again, I don't think there are any simple solutions here other than just to simply be aware of the science. I mean, I think, you know, one of the the problems I have is you know, when you provide this type of data and the the issues around insufficient sleep, um, I want the public to be aware of it because I think knowledge is not necessarily a burden. And I want I'm not trying to tell anyone how to live their life. I just want to empower you with the knowledge and then people can make their own decision. But I think it is one of those difficult things where um, if that is your profession and it's a job that you desperately love and you're incredibly good at it, um, how do you think about balancing those two tensions? Because what you essentially experience every weekend is something that we call social jet lag. And this typically happens in a less extreme version where people are working during the week. They're up early. Uh, And they need to sort of go to bed early. And then come the weekend, they sort of sleep in late and they're awake uh, in the night. Sort of they, they, they go to bed late, they wake up late. And then come Sunday evening, they have to try and drag their body clock all the way back by maybe two or three hours. And that's happening every weekend. And you have a version of that social jet lag, too. But it's actually professional jet lag in this regard. But to put that in context You know, if you're trying to shift your body clock every weekend by two or three hours, that's the equivalent of you flying back and forth from San Francisco to New York every weekend from a biological circadian perspective. And that really can be, you know, quite torturous on your biology. And we know that people working night shifts do have uh, significantly higher risks of things such as diabetes and obesity. And there's some evidence there regarding cancer as well. Um, in fact, I believe the World Health Organization has classified um, nighttime shift work as a probable carcinogen because of the association between that circadian sleep disruption and cancer risk.
0: You, know, you, you, you said a few paragraphs back something about, you know, not wanting to tell people how to live their lives. And I think you're in a tough position from a communication standpoint. I mean, uh, and I know you, you've you referenced not wanting to be, you know, the sort of grim reaper or grim sleeper. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it, uh, there are a couple of things that have made worth exploring here. One of them is that, you know, I, th- wearing this ring has been humbling for me because I, I do a lot of things right. I don't drink alcohol or caffeine. I meditate quite a bit. In fact, right before bed, I stretch right before bed. I have a cooling pad on my bed. I keep the room cool your advice i i don't expose myself to a lot of light before bed um uh you know i wear a retainer um i um i don't know lots lots of things that are would seem to be to up my odds of having a healthy night's sleep and yet i'm not cracking seven hours um that frequently and i i do feel a certain sense of like helplessness creeping in and i can imagine many listeners do as well
1: it, it's so difficult. And I should note, by the way, that, you know, I'm no poster child for sleep myself. You know, um, I I do all of the things that you do, too. And I, of course, know um, a little bit about sleep and, and hopefully how to get it. But I have nights where I struggle with sleep as well. I have phases of my life where I've gone through um, insomnia um, because of a number of different triggers. So um, I know how difficult it is. And I know, you know. I am the worst person. I essentially, knowing all that I know when I'm not sleeping well, I become the Woody Allen neurotic of the sleep world. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. You know, I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking, well, my dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is not shutting down. I'm not sort of, t- you know, tamping down my orexin chemicals in the brain and melatonin. And at that point, you're dead in the water for the next two hours. It's a disaster. So I, I genuinely feel for people um, And I think it's been, you speak about having a humbling experience, and I'm glad the ring has had that effect. I think, you know, it comes to something we often say in medicine, which is what gets measured gets managed. And I can ask you, how well did you sleep last night? And you could tell me, but if I were to say, well, how well did you sleep last Tuesday and the Wednesday before that and the Saturday before that? it's very difficult for us to know what our historical record of sleep has been and how we actually should think about our sort of trends. And I always think it's much better to follow, you know, trend lines than it is headlines. And that's why if anyone has had a bad night of sleep, let's not focus on it. Let's just say last night was last night. Let's look to the future and just let's try to make a trending improvement overall. But to come back to your point, um, you know, you're doing so many things right. What could be the other aspects that are that are coming in to, uh, to play? You know, one of them is the difficult issue of just getting older, that as we yes. get older, it is one of the most potent physiological signatures of aging, which is that our sleep gets worse. And we've done a lot of work in this area. We know in part why that's occurring. Um, I do think, however, that this sort of, you know, um, This weekend, weekday difference between your sleep is another thing to keep in mind. I think that that can be confusing your body and specifically your body clock, your 24-hour circadian clock. Um, And that's why you could have less optimal sleep efficiency than you are nevertheless capable of, even at age uh, 50. Um, And then also, I think... You know, the other factors of, you know, what is your chronotype? Are you sort of sleeping at the time when you naturally would like to sleep? I know that's so difficult when you have a family and you have a job and those forces will um, prevent you from that luxury of just sleeping biologically when you want. So those aren't necessarily solutions, but they are at least perhaps reasons that may explain why that sleep efficiency is a little bit lower than we would wish for.
0: What I'm hearing you say mostly is, it's It's good for people to have the information, and that's your job to give people the information and once you're informed, really try to do your best.
1: yeah, exactly that. And you know for those people who are anxious about sleep, um, I think you know trying not to sort of catastrophize and think it's a lost cause. Um, If you really are struggling, there are now some fantastic um, programs that can really help people with insomnia and one in particular, which is called Cognitive Behavioral uh, Therapy for Insomnia or CBTI cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia it seems to be just as efficacious as sleeping pills in the short term but what's better is that when you stop working with your therapist um, not only do you go back to the bad sleep that you are having which is what happens when you stop taking uh, sleeping medications you actually continue on that journey of good sleep and so there are helpful methods out there that people can embrace if they want to but also just trying not to get so overly anxious about sleep that ends up being counterproductive for some people as well, of course. And that's one of my greatest fears. Um, you know, I still struggle. I don't know the right balance yet between being a communicator of the science of sleep um, and truthfully telling people about sleep. You know, I think I don't want the world health organization or the CDC to stop publishing material about the deleterious effects of substance abuse or stress or, um, or obesity um but you know if i'm stressed uh, and naturally i am an anxious person and i read robert sapolsky's book um that you know zebras don't get ulcers and that you know provided me in great detail all of the health uh consequences that were happening because i was a stressed anxious individual did it make me more stressed yes it did <laughs> but did it motivate me to try and make behavioral changes to try and reduce my physiological stress and lower my anxiety? Yes, it did, too. And so I still don't know. I'm still finding my way as, you know, I'm just a scientist and I'm for the most part, am a very private person. Um, it, it's not very easy to be in public and, and communicate, but I do feel passionate about sleep. And I do think that there is. It's a message that, unlike diet and exercise, has yet to have its time in the public spotlight, and I hope that I can try and do a little part of that. But I struggle with knowing that razor's edge balance between being helpful to people versus, you know, causing anxiety and stress.
0: A comment and then two two last questions. My comment is, in my opinion, actually, you're walking this line very nicely, and which which leads me to uh, my penultimate question, which is for those – of us who have just spent uh, several hours listening to you um, uh, and are tempted to go, you know, light our our hair on fire and and talk to everybody we know about the importance of sleep and, you know, convince our partners that they need to sleep more, et cetera, et cetera. How do we do that without, you know, making everybody mad at us?
1: Um, I think trying to do it in an interesting way is always helpful But the best piece of advice I got was actually from my partner, which is um, as I was starting to sort of release the book and realize that I was beginning a a journey as a a public communicator of science, she told me something that was great, which was um, don't give people rules. People don't respond to rules. People respond to reasons, not rules. And Mm. so you can tell people that, yes, darkness at night is important. It's important to keep a bedroom cold. Alcohol and caffeine should be avoided. But don't stop there. Explain the mechanism, explain the reasons behind those things. That's when I think people connect with the information and realize why they're being told to do what they uh, they may want to do. And so I think if you're going to be, you know, a sleep ambassador out there, um. Simply telling people you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to do this is usually not going to go down very well from my experience, at least. But explaining people or explaining to people the underlying reasons behind those rules, that's when people I think that the the eyes light up they get this connection. They say, well, gosh, yes, I've definitely found that when I have alcohol, you know, it seems to knock me out. But then I wake up many more times throughout the night and I don't know why I feel, you know, so unrefreshed the following day. I never made the connection. I didn't realize alcohol fragments your sleep. I didn't realize that it's a sedative and what I'm experiencing is not sleep. I'm just simply sedating my brain and sedation isn't sleep. And and that's when people, I think, connect and bond with you and feel as though you're not simply wagging a finger, but you're genuinely and authentically trying to help them.
0: Final question. In the first nine days of my sleep data took were from a retreat, a meditation retreat that I was on, and the data was pretty weird. Um, uh, and I just wonder if you had any any thoughts. I mean, it looks like I uh, my sleep was quite fragmented and short and uh, actually sometimes it's gave me more credit for sleep than i deserve <laughs> because it it was saying that my meditation was sleep that's um, right and sometimes i do fall asleep during meditation but there's no way um you know the and i was wearing the ring all day at the uh, when i was in retreat and it was i was having especially toward the end of the retreat very clear vivid uh meditation sessions. And I know I wasn't asleep, and yet the ring was registering it as sleep. So but there was a lot there from my view. One was thinking that I was sleeping when I was in deep meditation. The other was that um, my sleep I, – I was not sleeping much at all while on retreat, which is not uncommon, and yet I felt perfectly well-rested.
1: So I think this is where, where- – getting to the limits of what these types of devices at present can actually do. The algorithms usually use a combination of movement as well as your heart rate and your respiration rate to try and determine, is this person asleep? Are they awake? And if they are in sleep, what, what stage of it uh, of sleep are they in? And it seems as though by sitting in a very still position, meditating where your heart rate starts to decelerate and your respiration starts to decrease it fools the ring into thinking, actually, this this person seems to be asleep. And that's a very harsh criticism because, you know, I think any device, um, any sleep measuring device would fall into that. It's not necessarily this, this ring's fault. I think it's, you would see that with many of the other sleep tracking devices. That's where if I had electrodes on your head, I would still be able to tell, okay, this person still has wakefulness in them. They're not asleep. They may look in a slightly odd state of wakefulness this beautiful thing that we call meditation but it certainly doesn't seem to be sleep
0: and what about the fact that i i wasn't getting much sleep and yeah it's very i, I asked you about this in the first part of our interview it, it's very common on meditation retreats for people to only sleep three four five hours a night and be quite awake i mean buddha, the word buddha translates into awake uh what do you what do you make of that
1: I think it's fascinating. I, you know, I know Richie Davidson, who um, you are um, good friends with and well connected with. You know, he's done um, some studies uh, out at Wisconsin with another sleep researcher called Giulio Tononi. Um, I just don't think we have good enough data yet to really understand what is going on with with meditation. I've heard this so much as I've been sort of speaking with the public. People will say, you know, as I go on these r- retreats, my sleep need typically decreases. Um, Is that because, you know, there's, for example, um, a change in the way that you're eating? Um, And is it the change in the eating that sort of changes? You know, is it that you're eating less? And typically when people start to eat less and when they fast, um, that usually is a trigger for the brain to actually stay awake more. Because from an evolutionary perspective, when food has become scarce, um, the animal is in danger. So the animal releases a chemical, uh, chemical uh, called orexin that is wake promoting. It decreases the amount of sleep and it allows them to spend more time foraging in a broader perimeter for food. Mm. And sometimes when we go into a state where we're eating less or we're fasting, it is um, telling the brain artificially, my goodness, food has become scarce. So I'm going to release this chemical and keep you awake longer. So it It may not necessarily be simply the idea that often people say to me, which is meditation is replacing my sleep and my sleep need has decreased. I think that is a possibility and I think we need to explore that. But there are also these other possibilities, other things that are changing in and around a retreat that could also be the trigger. I just don't think we know yet, but it's something I hear quite commonly and I think you know um often those things turn out to have some degree of truth uh to them you know clichés are often clichés because they're typically true mm-hmm.
0: next frontier of research um indeed uh matthew i just want to say say in in closing here i really appreciate all the time you've given to to the show and to our audience i think they're going to love this and i i really appreciate the work you're doing getting i agree with you that we know a lot about exercise and and uh, and diet and to a lesser extent meditation, but sleep has not gotten the airtime it deserves. So good on you for doing this work.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to the public about this. You know, I, um, I do want to try and help people, but I can only do it with fantastic partners who allow the message to be communicated to their audience. And this is the gift that you've given me. So thank you so much, Dan. Sleep well.
0: <laughs> I will. <laughs> Really appreciate all of his time. That was a great interview. It had a big impact on me personally. Let's do some uh, voicemails. As teased at the top of this episode, we've got a ringer this week, Oren J. Sofer, who's been a previous guest on this podcast, episodes 28 and 165, and is a very popular teacher on the 10% Happier app. And he's got uh, two great courses up on the app, one called Relationships, and the other uh, about working with emotions. Uh, so check him out on the app. In the meantime, uh, he, he also has a bunch of meditations up on our popular sleep tab. So he's uh, we, we got him to answer three questions related to sleep from you. Here's number one.
2: Hey, Dan. Bill here calling from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I have a question about uh, building a meditation habit. I'm finding that sometimes when I'm doing a guided meditation – particularly a little farther into the meditation, maybe I'm doing a 15 meditation, about eight minutes in, I find myself sometimes falling asleep. Is that, is that a horrible thing? Am I going to go to meditation jail for doing that? Um, when I do you know, wake up, usually at the end of the 15 minutes, I feel extremely refreshed, and I feel like it was a positive experience, but I'm just not quite sure how I can get around that or what I should do to
3: prevent it. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, this is Orange J. Sofer. Thanks for the question, Bill. It's a great question and also a really common experience. So if you think about it, when our eyes are closed, our body is still, and we're relaxed, most of the time in our life that means go to sleep. So it's really common when we're meditating and we start to feel more relaxed and calm that our body gets the message, oh, it's time to go to sleep. So it does take time with meditation to learn how to be still and relaxed, yet still have a quality of wakefulness and alertness in the mind. There's kind of an art to it. Now it sounds like um, you're finding the meditations energizing and refreshing in the end, which is a really good sign. So what I would say is try to pay a little bit more attention to things like your posture during the meditation. You might sit up a little bit straighter. You can also focus more on your in-breath, which is naturally activating. So you're bringing a little bit more energy into your body. Your out-breath is naturally gonna be more calming and settling. So if you focus on that, that's gonna tend to take you more into that zone of feeling a little bit lulled and moving towards sleep. Another thing you can do is try to turn the volume up a little bit on your level of interest in what's happening. So we don't fall asleep in life when we're actively engaged in something, watching a really interesting movie, having a conversation. So see if you can start to relate to the meditation itself with a quality of really alive interest. If you get curious about the breath or whatever meditation you're doing, that's going to bring more energy and help you stay awake too. The last thing you can try, Bill, is to reconnect with your sense of purpose or motivation for meditating. You know, why are you doing this? When we feel a strong sense of purpose, that also brings energy into the meditation. So thanks so much for your question again, and hope this is helpful. Good luck with the
0: practice. Big thanks to Oren and Bill on that. Here is voicemail number two. Hey, Dan. uh, My name is JC. I live in Reno, Nevada. Uh, I gotta say, man, love your show. I
2: love what you're doing out there. Uh, But my question would be, um, I started meditating at night, and I've noticed that I've had a significant increase in dreams. Um, I do about a 20-minute practice at night and a 20-minute practice in the morning. I'm just wondering if you've ever heard if that was a typical experience um, or if there's any literature or anything out there like that. That would be great. Thanks, Dan.
3: Thanks so much for the question, JC. It is really common, as a matter of fact. I don't know if there's been any research on increase in dreams with meditation, um, but there is a lot of literature about it within various meditation traditions. So there's a whole form of meditation practice, for example, in some Tibetan traditions called dream yoga where one consciously and intentionally practices to have lucid dreams uh, and remember your dreams and so forth. Uh, You might be familiar as well, there's forms of psychotherapy like Jungian analysis that also work with dreams. So for me, uh, in my own practice, I've certainly experienced that, and it's pretty easy to understand why. You know, meditation practice heightens our awareness, and it sharpens our senses. So it would make sense that that increased awareness and sharpness would start to carry over into our dreams and result in more vivid or deep or captivating dreams. Meditation also tends to help us to process things that might be unresolved in our psyche. Emotions, things from the past, difficult experiences maybe that we haven't dealt with. And even if that's not happening consciously in your meditations, things can be shifting or getting worked out in the background. And sometimes what can happen is our mind will start to work things out through our dreams. And it's as if the meditation practice is sort of priming the ground or laying the conditions for our subconscious to begin to work things through while we're sleeping so just a few tips if you're interested in working with it It, when you notice that this is happening it can be interesting when you wake up in the morning or even during the middle of the night after a dream to reflect on the dream and just take a few minutes to think about like what was the overall emotional tone or quality of the dream oftentimes there's a message there just in how we're feeling either in our life or about a particular situation You might consider, like, if there are any words or images that you remember that stand out, that have particular uh, force or power to them. And then you would just kind of consider, what do those bring to mind when you think of that word or see that image? What's the association that comes And what I find in myself is if I take a little time and just reflect on it, usually some kind of a meaning or a connection becomes clear. Not all of the time, but much of the time. And you can also get better at it. Taking the time to reflect on the dream, you start to get a feeling for how your psyche is communicating and processing things. So thanks so much again for the question, JC. Thanks for your practice and good luck with it.
0: Thank you, Oren and JC. And now voicemail number three.
2: My name is Jeff out of the Boston area. I'm a meditator about six months. I have been trained in mindfulness and locally, and I've been practicing uh, almost daily. And my question is when I'm getting into a very deep meditative state, after usually a good 10 minutes or so, I've noticed that sometimes it feels like I'm falling asleep, a pre-sleep feeling. Uh, and sometimes I even catch myself uh, jerking awake with a little hypnic uh, jerk. And um, so I know in most cases that I am actually on the edge of falling asleep. I'm wondering uh, that uh, should I be meditating at a level where I'm very, very what I would consider deep and almost zoning, uh, in, in almost a pre-sleep condition, or should I be as I am in other times, very wide awake, very uh, aware of what's going on in my, uh, in my practice and, and being mind, really mindful in what's around me, or should I be, again, more in a trance-like almost condition? Thanks very much.
3: Thanks so much for the question, Jeff. That's a great question. So the name of the game here with meditation is balance. We're really looking for balance on many, many levels. We want the posture to be balanced. We want to balance our sense of trust with a quality of skepticism and investigation. And we want to balance the quality of wakeful alertness that you're talking about with that sense of real tranquility and ease. So meditation practice involves two parts. On the one hand, there is this aspect of it that's really about soothing and nourishing ourselves and just kind of recovering from the stress and the incessant friction of life. So I think it's it's helpful and important to allow ourselves in meditation when we do feel at ease, when we feel those feelings of pleasure, even a little bit of drifting, To not jerk ourselves away from it, to let yourself be nourished by it, let it replenish you. At the same time, we don't want to be drifting off to sleep. Over time, that's going to be counterproductive. Every now and then, yeah, of course, you know, we drift a little bit, you catch a quick cat nap, great, no worries. But if that's what's happening all the time in your meditation practice, I would encourage you to try to balance that with more awareness, because ultimately... In these two parts of the meditation, there's the nourishing, calming, kind of settling part, but then there's also the understanding, the wisdom, the clarity, and really the sense of calm and nourishment is in service of the transformation that comes from wakefulness, clarity, and understanding. And that kind of wisdom only develops when the mind is aware and awake. So you want to see if you can bring in more of that quality of alertness without it being uptight, without it being frenetic or forced, so that the two start to blend together. You have a really clear, steady, bright awareness that's also easeful. That's really what we're going for. So one of the metaphors that I like to use is you can think about a radio receiver, like on a stereo, on a hi-fi stereo, where you've got the bass and the mid and the treble, and you've got all these little dials that you can adjust. So what we're trying to do here is we're trying to become more familiar with the energies, the qualities, and the intentions in our own mind and body. The amounts of energy and interest and curiosity and ease and kindness and patience, and just adjust those ever so slightly here and there so that we find the right balance and things come into focus on their own. So it sounds great. I would say keep going with it. Keep investigating, being curious, and uh, and you'll find that balance on your own in time. Thanks so much for the question, Jeff, and uh, good luck with it.
0: Big thanks to Oren for joining us for this week's special Voicemail section on sleep. And big thanks to the folks who put this show together Uh, Ryan Kessler, Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, Lauren Hartzog, Tiffany Omahundro. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
4: Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.
5: I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition.